Hey, deserving listeners, I want to tell you something. I get many, many emails from listeners who want advice about how to choose the right graduate school. They want to enter into psychology or psychotherapy or counseling or social work or something, and they email me and they, they want advice about how to choose the, the right school to go to, and rightfully so because it's a huge decision. A typical master's degree in one of the psychotherapy fields will take at least two years, if not six years, depending on the subject and how much time you have to, to do the work. And a typical doctorate will take you at least six years, if not much more than that. And graduate school not only takes a lot of time, but it takes a lot of money. A master's degree will run you around $50,000 at least, and that's just for tuition. And a typical doctorate will be, you know, north of one hundred thousand, probably more like one hundred and thirty, one hundred and fifty thousand. Also, while you're in school, it's hard to work at a job. So, for many students like myself during my master's, students don't work or they work very little. So they need loans to pay for rent and food and stuff. And also, graduate school is super stressful. My master's was super stressful, and my doctorate was perhaps more stressful because I was working full-time during my doctorate. So for these reasons, it's really important that people choose the right degree. And in my experience, there is really bad information out there. Most of the information is either way too simplistic or it's biased because it's presented by the programs themselves or it's just plain wrong. For example... I just Googled psychotherapist education, and I clicked on the very first site that pops up on Google, and I read the very first sentence, and it reads, quote, a psychotherapist needs a doctorate degree in order to practice professionally, unquote. This is patently wrong. This is bad information. It's, it's, it's just, it's so mis... I, I can't imagine who wrote this stupid article, and it's the first thing that comes up on Google. There's a lot of bad information like this on the internet, and I'm guessing that's why so many people email me asking me for advice about which program to choose. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, I've talked about this before in other podcast episodes, but never to the extent I'm going to talk about today. This is going to be a deep dive. I have a long script here. It's, oh my God, it's 35 pages long. So I don't know. I'm guessing this is going to be hours of me talking. Uh, I'm going to talk about what you should consider, how to get information, what information you need to gather, what degree you should pursue, what sort of jobs there are out there, how much you're going to get paid, how you're going to pay off your student loans, how uh, to avoid wasting tens of thousands of dollars and years of your life. So those are all the things I'm going to talk about today. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University Seattle, and I'm also a licensed therapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast yet, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Patrons get access to all premium episodes on their phones or on the Patreon page. And you should also know that a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. 
Okay, welcome to the Patron Zone, people. We love you so much for becoming patrons. Spread the word if you can, especially if you're in the field and you know others in the field. All right, uh, this e- this uh, subject was because a patron actually wrote in, Patron Gage. He wrote, I am an 18-year-old high school senior from Kansas. I will be graduating in late May. Uh, by the way, Gage, uh, a, a good portion of my family, half of my family, hails from Kansas, so I feel an affinity. <laughs> Salina, Salina, or Sal- I don't know, Salina, Kansas. Anyway, Gage says, I'm an 18-year-old high school senior from Kansas. I will be graduating in late May. I have been very confused and stressed about making the decision of what to do with my life. I'm a straight-A student, and I'm on track track to graduate as valid valedictorian of my class. For several years, I just assumed I would do what a lot of my family members have done, which is become some type some type of engineer. Unquote. Yeah, Gage, I had a very similar thought when I was at your age. I was going to become an engineer. Everyone at the time, this is before Microsoft. In Seattle, Boeing was the big industry. And so a lot of people were becoming engineers and working for Boeing. And my dad had worked for Boeing for 45 years. And my brother uh, eventually worked for Boeing, my aunt, uh, so many people worked at Boeing. And so I just thought that was my lot in life. Plus, I really liked engineering topics like math and science and chemistry and physics and did really well in those classes and didn't do well in history and and English and foreign language. I was terrible in those other classes. And so I figured, yeah, I'll become an engineer. And then when I just started thinking about it, I just thought, I don't know if I really want to be an engineer. And so um, I uh, know your pain. I I was not valedictorian of my class, so that's impressive, Gage. Uh, and I wasn't straight A, but I was uh, just shy of straight A students, so I'm almost as cool as you, Gage. Anyway, going on here with the email. I'm lucky because psychology is offered as college credit in my high school, so I am taking it at the moment. I have a great teacher who loves the field and uses real-world examples to convey concepts to her students. I have enjoyed this class so much that I am now planning on enrolling in college as a psychology major. Psychology fascinates me like no other subject does. Most scientific fields interest me in some way, but eventually become monotonous after a while. Psychology is different. I never get tired of thinking about what goes on inside the human mind, and I love learning about all the different structures, disorders, concepts, etc. Unquote. Yeah, Gage, I'm the same. It's true. Psychology is eternally fascinating, as I'm guessing that listeners to this podcast will agree with you. I've been studying it now intensely for 20 years, probably more intensely for the past 10. And I can tell you that I've just scratched the surface on a lot of things. And so it's it's fascinating. And it, it applies to your personal life and your inner life and your relational life and the meaning of your life. And everything is involved, I think. And so I, I find that to be very fulfilling in terms of a career choice. Okay, back to your email. I'm writing you to ask for some general advice about my future in this field. I plan on getting a master's degree and possibly a doctorate. From what I understand, I have to go into a specific branch of psychology. This is my main concern because I simply love all of the field. 
At this point in time, I believe being a clinical psychologist would suit me best, simply because I love helping people. But I am also fascinated by psychological research and could just as easily see myself in a position where I am always experimenting on the mind. Unquote. Okay, well, patron Gage, you are uh, a, you write well already, so uh, and you must be a smart dude because you are. Well, I assume you're a dude. Uh, maybe not. Is Gage? Uh, and I shouldn't assume people's genders anyway. So um, anyway, Gage, you are valid valedictorian and straight A student, and you write well, and you're thinking about all the right things, and you're reaching out, which is one of my main points in this whole presentation is gather information before you make your choice. So, okay. Again, as I said before, many people ask me this question because there's a lot of bad, bad information out there, a lot of conflicting information. You should be very careful about which program you choose because I've seen people get halfway through a program and realize they've made a mistake. And you can't get your money back or your time back or your blood, sweat, and tears back. So you have to do your homework before you choose a program or you could risk wasting a lot of time and money. Um, you know, it's weird actually because I've seen a lot of people choose a program after only talking with a couple people. And in a way, that was me. I, I just happened to choose uh, uh, randomly and luckily well. But but a lot of people, they'll just talk to a couple people and they'll be like, okay, I'm going to go to that. I'm going to go to that program. Given the magnitude of this decision, you should be talking with dozens of people. Also, most people either have bad information or biased information, so you need to talk with many people to make sure you're you know, getting a consensus of what the good information is. If you only talk to two people and those two people have bad information, then you're working on bad information. So Gage, Patron Gage, use this podcast as one of those voices, one of those dozens of people you should be talking to, and by no means – should you be using this podcast as the only voice you should be listening to? Also, as a caveat, I should say that this advice that I'm about to provide is mainly for people in the United States. I know that in the UK and in Australia and other places, they have similar systems as we do in the United States in terms of graduate school, but they differ in some major ways. And I'm not knowledgeable enough about those systems to talk about them intelligently, but some of this advice will be applicable to anyone who wants to enter the field, regardless of what country that they live in. Okay, so when you're looking for a program and you come across a program that you're interested in, ask the program to give you contacts to talk with, like alumni or instructors or the program director like me or other people. This way you can talk with these people and really find out about the program from the horse's mouth, as they say. You want to ask the instructors and you want to ask the alumni and you want to, you want to ask them a bunch of questions like, is this a good program? Do you recommend it? Do they have any crazy or abusive professors? What sort of jobs are available for the graduates? How much money do the alumni make? Is this program accredited? And by who are they accredited? Does this program prepare graduates for a particular license in that, in that area? How long does the program take? How much does it cost? These are very important questions. And if a program cannot, cannot answer these questions sufficiently, then I would look elsewhere. In my program, I have asked a bunch of alumni if they'd be willing to answer questions of prospective students, and all of them agreed. So I gave all of their names to the admissions people so that the admissions people can give the names and email addresses to prospective students. So 
prospective students can get their questions answered from people who don't work for the, for Antioch and who can really provide inside knowledge. Also at Antioch, I frequently answer questions from applicants as a program director because our admissions people only know so much. So the admissions people will refer applicants directly to me so I can clear up any confusion about the program or the field at large. So um, you should ask programs for people to talk to. Also be skeptical about the information that comes from a program. I can tell you from personal experience that programs can say just about anything they want to about their program, and they will get away with it because no one's really double-checking their their figures. Having said that, I guess I should say that I always tell the truth regarding my program. I'm, I'm in charge of all the data gathering and all the reporting for my program, and I can tell you that I have never fudged any numbers, so um, mostly because... I'd like to think of myself as a moral person, but also because I'm not a very good liar. And also because my program tends to have excellent outcomes. You know, for example, not to toot my own horn, but I just administered a survey to all of our alumni and 100% of them said that they would recommend our program to other people. So anyway, this isn't an advertisement for my program, but my point is, is that uh, I don't lie, but I'm guessing other programs do, or at least they will spin the truth. So uh, you should you should know that. Um, anyway, in, in, in conclusion, do your homework. Be skeptical of the website, in particular, in terms of the claims. Ask questions, demand answers, and get info from several sources. In other words, don't be shy and don't be lazy. I mean, it's like, would would you buy a car without test driving at first? Would you would you buy a house without ever seeing or walking around inside of it? Um, would you, would you go to a restaurant without checking the ratings on Yelp? I mean, you know, uh, as a Yelper myself, I can tell you uh, that you know you got to you might even look at a program on Yelp. I don't know if <laughs> Yelp. Yelpers, Yelp programs, but okay. So let's get into some specifics regarding how to choose the right program after, you know, once you gain information. So here's the main question you have to explore. If there's one thing you remember from this presentation, remember this. What job do you want after you graduate? This is important. What job do you want to actually do after you graduate? Now, you'll notice that I didn't say, what do you want to do? after graduation. You have to figure out what sort of job you want. This is a very different question than what you want to do after graduation. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I knew someone who entered a psychology doctorate program because he wanted to do research. He loved research. He loved reading about research. He loved doing research when he was in his doc doctorate program. He couldn't wait to conduct his own research. But after graduation, he quickly learned that there were very few jobs in research, and most, of the, and most of these jobs were in research areas that he was not interested in, and most of the research jobs were as an assistant or some other job that only involved boring, tedious tasks like logging the behavior of a mouse or something. <laughs> and he discovered that most of the jobs in research are contingent upon fundings from grants, which are often short-term, which means that many jobs in research are quite short, which means you need to be continually begging funders for money through grants in order to put food on the table. Now, not all research jobs are like this, of course. 
but I hope you get my point. This person that I knew, he didn't do his homework before he chose a program. He chose a program based on what he wanted to do rather than actually looking at the actual job market. This is why you need to actually talk with people who are actually working at the job that you want so you can get important information about what it's what it's actually like. This happened to me when I, when I was in my undergrad when I was 20 years old. I took an advertising class or a marketing class or something and I decided I wanted to work in advertising. And I talked to some people who actually worked for an advertising firm in Seattle and after talking with them, I decided I did not want to work in advertising because the way they described their job, it, it seemed miserable and it also seemed not very fun. And it also seemed like a lot of work for not a lot of creative benefit. And so, because when you think about when I was 20 and I imagined what it was to be an advertiser, I thought, oh, you just sit around and you come up with creative ideas to sell products. And yes, there are some people that do that, but you also have to please the client and you also have to think about budget and you also have to think about, you know, there's just all these things that become quite tedious and I'm sure advertisers out there could even list more tedious things that they have to go through. And so so that your fantasy of a job is sometimes not accurate. And so, you know, you you need to talk to actual people who are doing the job that you want to do. If you want to be a plumber, for instance, it's probably not hard to imagine what a plumber does because you've had plumbers come to your house and do things and you've been, like, oh, that's what they do. Well, being a psychologist or being a therapist or a social worker or a psychiatrist or something, those are things that we mainly see in the movies or TV um, and all that information is bad information. I mean, if we went off of what's in the movie and the t and TV, movies and TV, then you would assume that every therapist has sex with at least you know some of their clients. <laughs> you know, that's most you know therapists and TV and movies have sex with their clients. And so we, you know, just as as that example, we can't trust what's available to us. So you really have to go ask actual people. As another example, a friend of mine got in a master's program in counseling because he wanted to become the next Tony Robbins. If you don't remember who Tony Robbins was, he was that super tall motivational speaker guy that you might see on Channel 9. He was in the movie Shallow Hal with Jack Black if you remember, they, when they were stuck in the elevator. Anyway, my friend who was also super tall and he even sort of looked like Tony Robbins. He got his master's because he wanted to get a job as a motivational speaker like Tony Robbins. Well, guess what happened after he graduated? He didn't find a job as a motivational speaker like Tony Robbins because those jobs don't exist. And he sort of floundered for a while after graduation and later got a job in the tech field. I don't know what he's doing now, but... Uh, but that's you know what happens shortly after graduation. Now, maybe he's a motivational speaker now. Maybe he's doing great. But I know for a number of years after he graduated, he uh, basically, uh, in, in my word, he floundered regarding his job situation. Anyway, so this is all to say that you have to explore what job you want. Really think about this. Get an accurate picture of the jobs available in your area. How, how much does it pay? How stressful is it? What's the turnover? What is it really like to work at this job? Many jobs seem much more glamorous than they actually are. 
Um, and as another example, a friend of mine, he's a high-powered lawyer, you know, attorney, and he makes a lot of money, which sounds super cool, you know. In my mind, I picture him as Atticus Finch in a three-piece suit, and he's in court, and he's making his case, and it's super cool, like it's in the movies. So I asked him about what his day-to-day job was, and he told me that he spends 99.9% of his time on his laptop. <laughs> he says he spends you know, nearly all of his time typing on a computer and writing reports or responding to emails. And he's always stressed out because there's always a big deadline coming up or something. And although he makes a lot of money, like I said, he can never spend it because he's constantly working. <laughs> so again, it's important not to believe the fantasy about your dream job. It's important to actually find out the real information. You need to actually observe what it's like to work at that job and um, you know the, the day-to-day stuff, not the stuff that they show in Hollywood or, or not the stuff that is in your fantasy. Okay. So again, make sure you know what job you want, not what you want to do but what job, what occupation you want to do. Make sure you know the reality of that occupation and make sure you're prepared for the reality of what the job pays and all that kind of stuff. Now, having said all that stuff, if you decide you want to become the next Tony Robbins and you've done your research and you know that the chance of becoming the next next Tony Robbins is extremely slim, and you decide to go ahead with going to graduate school to become the next Tony Robbins anyway, then great. But in my experience, a lot of people will say, well, after graduation, this is what I want to do. And I, then I'll ask them, so what's the likelihood you think that's going to happen? And I say, oh, pretty good. Yeah, it's a pretty good likelihood that's going to happen. And I'm thinking, no, it's not. <laughs> I mean, there's a chance, but uh, you know, it's not. Whereas if you said, I want to get a master's in therapy and after graduation, I want to work at a youth and family service agency, that's my, that's my plan, then I would say, good plan, because the likelihood of that happening is actually extremely high. So it's all a matter of knowing what the plan is and knowing how uh, likelihood it is that you'll actually be able to enact that plan. Okay, so let me tell you about the sort of jobs there are in psychology, the sort of occupations there are in psychotherapy and and psychology. Let, let's talk about just psychotherapy first, not psychology. That's what I am. I'm a psychotherapist. A psychotherapist is someone who works with clients to help them with some sort of psychological issue or some sort of relational issue. This work often involves sitting in an office and talking, but other times it involves using art or drama or dance or play or some other form of expression and, and communication. But often it involves client comes to office, you're sitting there, maybe it's one person, maybe it's five people, but um, you sit there and you talk for an hour. There are many professions within the field of psychotherapy. For instance, I am a marriage and family therapist who works in the field of marriage and family therapy, which means that I work with uh, couples and I also work with families, but I also work with individuals. It's a little confusing to be licensed like as a marriage and family therapist like myself, because sometimes I have to explain, I, I also see individuals. In fact, in fact, most marriage and family therapists, most of their clients are individuals, which is the case for me. About half my clients are couples, half are individuals. Marriage and family therapists often work with children and teens, but not all marriage and family therapists do that. For example, like I said, my current practice is entirely adults and couples. 
and they're all what we call self-actualizing or trying to improve their relationships somehow. So in other words, they're not suffering from a mental illness. They're what we call high-functioning clients since they don't have a ton of problems and their lives are going pretty well. But in my early career, I was working with a different group. I was, I was mainly working with youth and family at youth and family service agencies. And I worked with what they call multi-problem families. These families are often poor. They're often single parent families, often just the mother. They're often marginalized for one reason or another, like they might be immigrants or an ethnic minority or something else. Now, I really enjoyed working with these populations, but there's not a lot of money in it. So as my career progressed, I slowly transitioned to seeing more and more people in my private practice and, and less and less people in the agency setting. And clients in private practice tend to be much more, quote unquote, high functioning and wealthy and, that, and able to afford $150 an hour for, you know, weekly for a long time. Now, I will say that I also provide pro bono services because I want to provide services to people who couldn't afford therapy otherwise. And it's also an ethical issue in my field that you don't abandon marginalized groups. So, so that's what I'm doing now, but all right. So, so that's kind of a typical career path in marriage and family therapy. You start out working with children and teens and their parents often in agency settings. And if you go into private practice, you have much more control over what sort of clients you want to see. Now, I know marriage and family therapists who specialize in a lot of different areas. So different areas of specialization are infants, like, you know, one-year-olds, believe it or not, two-year-olds are sometimes dragged into therapy. Uh, other areas of specialization are young children, teenagers, adults, elderly people, couples, premarital counseling, families, ADHD, autism, addiction, sexuality, LGBTQIA issues, attachment issues, sleep, teen defiance. There's a lot of defiant teens in Seattle. <laughs> if you specialize in teen defiance, there's a lot of work for you. Uh, depression, anxiety, grief, divorce, etc. Uh, and there's many other areas of specialization that marriage and family therapy, marriage and family therapists will get into. Now, some marriage and family therapists, I'm, I'm just going to refer to marriage and family therapists as MFTs, MF, marriage and family therapists. That's the terminology in my world, MFTs. Some MFTs will see clients from all these areas that I listed, and some will specialize in just one of these areas. For example, I know an MFT who only sees couples. She only works with couples. She doesn't work with individual adults. She only works with couples. And I know another MFT who only works with families who have an autistic family member. So there's a, there's a lot of variety regarding what sort of population you work with. Uh, it all just depends on, it's particularly if you're in private practice, it all depends on your preference and what the market will bear to some extent too. Because if you want to specialize in, you know, teenage girls who have eating disorders and also have histrionic who have one of their parents happen to be addicted, you know, I'm exaggerating, but the, the further, uh, whenever you specialize, whatever you specialize in and whatever you advertise about that you do, 
you have to make sure that in your market, there's enough clients to come your way. And with the understanding that you have a lot of competition in your community. So it's, it's a matter of understanding what that is and you want to get consultation on that. Okay. Now, most marriage and family therapists work with teens, couples, and adults. Um, so although some will specialize, like I said, in infants or in just couples, I would say most anecdotally, most marriage and family therapists, they work with teens and couples and adults. Uh, it's strange, but working with children is kind of a specialized thing. I, in my private practice, stopped seeing kids a long time ago because seeing kids is a whole different ball of wax. It requires having toys. It requires having an, an office that doesn't have sharp corners. It requires an office that allows for kids to kind of throw things around because when you're interacting with kids in therapy, particularly kids who have behavior problems, a lot of a lot of physical chaos can occur. And so a long time ago, I just decided that I didn't want to have to outfit my home office to accommodate for that. Plus, my professional fulfillment was much higher when it came to teens and couples and adults. So I stopped working with teens, although I, st- I stopped working with kids. A long time ago, but I miss it to some extent. There's there's a there's a joy and and a certain kind of fulfillment. And if I in working with kids, and if I worked at an agency again, I would absolutely love to work with kids because agencies usually have playrooms that have a lot of toys, and it's totally set up to play with kids. And so, um, so anyway. Now, like I said, most marriage and family therapists work with teens and their parents and couples and individual adults, things like defiant teens. Like I said, that's a, there's a big market if you specialize in defiant teenagers who are, quote, unquote, running away from home and smoking pot and getting bad grades and, and not doing their chores and all that kind of stuff. Also, MFTs work a lot with parents who need help with their parenting. They work a lot with couples who are struggling in their marriage. Maybe there was an affair, maybe there was an affair or maybe they've been fighting a lot. MFTs also work with adults, individual adults who are struggling with work or with marriage or with addictions or some other thing. Now, there are a lot of other gigs for MFTs, like working as a researcher or working at a hospital or at a high school or as a consultant or as a supervisor or as an instructor like me, um, I am. Uh, I work as an administrator at a university because I'm a program director, um, and I'm also a a therapist, and I'm also an instructor. So there's a lot of other jobs. I, I also work at a camp once a year, at a high at a camp for middle school and and high schoolers, in which they do a lot of activities, including psychological and and self-discovery activities that I'm in charge of. So there's a lot of different gigs for marriage and family therapists. The The point is, is that um, oftentimes people don't understand how many jobs there are available when, you know, people will think, oh, marriage and family therapists. Oh, they talk with, you know, couples and families. But really MFTs in reality do a lot of different things. And it all just depends on what, you're into and what you're willing to put your time into learning about and what you're willing to put your time into networking about and 
So there's, there's a lot of freedom. So that's the job of marriage and family therapy. Now, what does it take to be a marriage and family therapist? To be a marriage and family therapist, you need to get a master's degree. But you can also get your doctorate. But most just have their master's. Master's degrees typically take about two to three years. It usually costs around $50,000 for tuition, give or take 10000 And if you expect uh, – and what you can expect to make after graduation – is about 40000 per year at entry-level jobs, which is usually at agencies. And moving forward in your, in your career, you can make about sixty dollars to $80,000 a year if you work your way up in the ranks of the agency, like becoming a supervisor and that sort of thing. And in private practice, which a lot of marriage and family therapies therapists go into private practice, you can make anywhere between $0 a year, because you don't have any clients, or two to three hundred thousand dollars a year, depending on how well your private practice is going and at what stage you are in your career. To be more specific, from for myself, I, for instance, I charge one hundred and fifty dollars per session, and sessions are fifty minutes long. But some of my clients are using insurance, which means I can only charge them about a hundred dollars per session, depending on the insurance agency. It varies from like ninety to one hundred and sixteen or something. So. And I should also remind people that I also do pro bono work, which is, of course, free to clients. And when you're in paper, when you're in private practice, paperwork is actually very minimal. Uh, whenever I tell people that who work at agencies, they just uh, uh, they instantly want to go into private practice because there tends to be a lot of paperwork when you're at agencies. But in private practice, there's not a lot of paperwork. And the overhead is actually minimal, especially since I have a home office. So I don't even have to pay to rent an office, which means that most of my revenue is converted into profit. And a typical full-time practice is about 25 to 30 clients a week. Some people will see more. But, um, but for me, when I was full-time, I was like 25 clients per week, which was like all day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and half day on Thursday. Which means that if I had a full time practice now, which I don't, I could make about 150 to 200K per year and only have to work about 30 hours per week. But um, I don't do that because I work at the university, which doesn't pay me nearly as much as I would if I spent all that. So if I just spent all my week in private practice, I could make probably two to three times more money than I actually make right now. <laughs> um, but Life is more than money. And if I really wanted to just make money, I never would have become a therapist. I would have worked at Microsoft like all my friends did. So, so it's not about the money. It's about, it's about, um, it's somewhat about the money, <laughs> but it's also about having a job that you enjoy. And so it, there's a sweet spot, right? Anyway, which, which I feel like I found, but anyway. Um, so, um, now, I will say that it took me many years to get to a place where that sort of money was possible. You know, the 150K, 200K per year, even though I, I don't make that much. Um, for me to have that possibility in my private practice, it took a long time. For years, I barely had any clients, which is why I stayed working at agencies for a number of years. But I 
have supervisees who managed to build a lucrative full-time practice within a number of months after graduation. So it all depends on how good of a marketer you are. Some people, like I said, within months build a full-time private practice and are making serious money right out of the gate. And some people, it, it takes them their entire life and they never build a practice. Because being in private practice is a, you know, it's an entrepreneurial pursuit. Some people are good at building a business and some people are not. And that's just the nature of owning a business. It all depends on how much effort you put into it and whether or not your efforts are going into the right places or not. Okay. So that's marriage and family therapy. Like I said, lots of different gigs, but the two main gigs are working at an agency. And by agency, I mean like youth and family service agency or community mental health it's a it, these agencies usually service people who are on Medicaid or medical coupons. These are families who what we call have mul- multiple problems. They are poor, they're marginalized, they have uh, their single parents. Uh, the mother might be recovering from addiction. Um, there's there's a lot of issues, and so there's there's those types of clients, and then. Um, and those kinds of jobs. And then there's also private practice, which I think you could imagine what that was like. But there's a lot of peripheral gigs, like I was saying before. You can work at a camp. You can become a consultant. You can work for a corporation regarding um, how the, the people at their work can get along better. You know, there's a lot of different gigs. But in general, the main opportunities are in agencies and in private practice. Now, agencies are if you want to if you want to work at an agency as a marriage and family therapy therapist for the rest of your life, you're probably guaranteed a job because there's a lot of jobs, there's a lot of turnover as a thing. Um, so that will that's always available to you. Like for instance, for me, when there was the downturn in the economy in 2008, and all my clients dried up because everyone was freaking out about money and and whatnot. Uh, I had to seriously think of, because I was just in private practice at the time, I had to seriously think about what I was going to do. And so a part of my plan was to start working at an agency again. Because and, and I never questioned whether or not I'd be able to get a job because I just knew that there's always jobs at, at agencies. <laughs> so, um, so there's that. But they don't pay as much. That's the trade-off. So you, can, you get the security of working at an agency – but and you get health insurance and maybe retirement and you only have to work from nine to five and whatnot. But you don't get paid as much. Um, whereas in private practice, you get you can get paid you know five to ten times as much, you know, but at least two to three times as much. But there's a lot of uncertainty, and you have to be good at building a business, and you have to be good about paying your quarterly taxes, and you have to figure out how to expense things, and you have to da 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 da. You do your own paperwork and blah, blah. So, you know, uh, but it's not rocket science. And as long as you have a good supervisor or good consultants, it's, you know, it's not hard. Okay. So now let's talk, we've talked about marriage and family therapy. Let's talk about counseling. In my state, counselors are called clinical mental health counselors and in many other states too. But in other states in the U.S., they are, they are called licensed professional counselors or LPCs. They're are other names too, but they often involve the word counselor. So over time, the professions 
have split the word therapist and counselor. So marriage and family therapists are called therapists, and mental health counselors are often called counselors. But sometimes people use the terms interchangeably. I mean, I do. I consider myself both a therapist and a counselor. But professionally, in terms of my license, I'm a therapist. And there's really no difference between them. They're just labels uh, for professions, which I'll get more into later. But now I could describe mental health counselors in detail, but it'd be easier just to say that uh, mental health counselors are MHCs. So I'm going to say MHC for mental health counselor and MFT for marriage and family therapist. So I could describe in full detail the entire mental health counsel, counseling world, but it's actually easier just for me to say that MHCs, mental health counselors, are almost identical to marriage and family therapists. They're, they, they're very similar. Now, people out there would be angry at me for saying that, but I'm here to tell you they're very similar. And I'm very intimate with the MHC world because my, my program at Antioch University, I, I teach MHCs in my program because we have a dual program, MFT and MHC. So MHC and so counselors and therapists, they both need to get their master's. They both spend the same amount of time to get their master's, depending on the program. Some MHC programs are longer than some MFT programs, and some MFT programs are longer than MHC programs. For example, at my university, the MHC program is 90 credits, quarter credits, and the, MH, and the MFT program is 75. So the MHC program, but the MHC internship is a little shorter so in, in, in reality, what that means is the MHC program on average is something like three and a half years long, whereas the MFT program is average three years. So, um, but other MHC programs might be shorter than our MFT program. Anyway, so MFT and MHC both need to get their master's. They both spend the same amount of time in their master's, again, depending on the program. They spend about the same amount of money uh, on their program. And they often work at the same places during internship and after graduation. Their private practices are basically identical. They earn the same amount of money. They get the same sort of clients, depending on what they want to specialize in. Insurance companies treat them as the same. But there are some differences. For example, MFTs, marriage and family therapists, tend to be trained more in systems theory while MHCs tend to be trained more in what they call individual theories, like cognitive behavioral theory. But really, many MFTs are into individual theories, and many MHCs are into systems theory. So it's hard to distinguish between them in that way. For example, if someone were to talk with me, they would think I was a counselor because of how much I talk about psychodynamic theory, which is traditionally an MHC theory. But I'm a marriage and family therapist. So Every individual is, it's up to them in terms of what sort of theories they want to uh, learn more about. But the training programs will tend to emphasize uh, accordingly. Another difference is that MHCs often have internships that involve working with severely mentally ill people, like people who suffer from psychosis, whereas MFTs often have little experience working with severely mentally ill people. But again, some MFTs work at agencies that provide services for severely mentally ill people, so this is not true for everyone. But in my experience, MHCs often know a little bit more about severe mental illness than MFTs do in general. 
Another small difference between MFTs and MHCs is that MFTs are specifically trained to work with couples and families in addition to working with individuals. So MHCs tend to have more training in working with individuals while marriage and family therapists have less training working with individuals because they also get trained in working with couples and families, if that makes any sense. This is why I became an MFT, because I didn't want to be limited to individuals. I also wanted to work with couples and families. Now, this isn't to say that MHCs don't treat couples and families, because they do. But they often seek additional training and supervision to become competent in working with couples and families because their master's program often doesn't prepare them to work with those sorts of clients. For example, a colleague of mine who is a counselor, she hired me as a consultant for several years because she wanted to learn how to work with couples because she knew that I teach couple therapy. So so you should know that. So regarding specific jobs, though, MHCs typically have the exact sort of jobs that MFTs do. <laughs> and again, I'm sure there are people out there like, oh my God, no way. But I, I, I can sort of pull rank to some extent because as program director and as, a, as an instructor for the past 20 years, I, I come into contact with a lot of people in my field, you know, at conferences and, and this podcast too. I interact with a lot of professionals. And I'm here to tell you that that it's hard to generalize about the differences between MFTs and MHCs. And believe me, people around me, including myself, have tried. You know, we try to say, well, you know, marriage and family therapists, they're more fun than counselors. <laughs> or counselors, they're more introverted or something. And really, it's, it's, there's too many types of counselors and too many types of therapists to easily uh, 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 generalize in that way. So again, MHCs, uh, mental health counselors, and marriage family therapists, they often have a similar career path available to them, which often involves working at an agency in their early career and then either working up the ladder at the agency or transitioning into private practice or some other sort of random gig. Okay, so that's marriage and family therapy, and that's mental health counseling or licensed professional counselors. Let's quickly talk about social work. I have to admit that I'm not very familiar with the field of social work, so take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. I know the fields of MFT and MHC very well because, like I said, my master's program is a dual program in that it trains both MFTs and MHCs, and all of my colleagues are either MFTs or MHCs or psychologists. We also incidentally treat art therapists and drama therapists and other sorts of therapists, but I'll get more into that later. So I don't, I, I don't really know the field of social, social work very well, but I have supervised social workers and my therapist, she's a social worker. So, so here's what I know. In many ways, social workers are exactly the same as MFTs and MHCs. Social workers, again, are master's level people, so all they do have to do is get, all they have to do is get their master's. They don't need to get a doctorate. They spend about the same amount of time in school. They spend about the same amount of money. Their licensing requirements are similar. They work at the same internships, and they have the same postgrad careers in general. Take my therapist, for example. She's a psychotherapist in private practice, and as far as I can tell, her practice is pretty similar to mine in that she sees high-functioning, self-actualizing clients. But 
Social workers are also trained to work at jobs that MFTs and MHCs are not trained in. From what I can tell, they are often trained to work as assessment people in hospitals or as social workers in public health or in you know the Department of uh, Social Services and other gigs that don't involve psychotherapy at all. For example, one of my supervisees who hired me to help him with his private practice, he worked in a hospital before I knew him. So he worked in an ER. When a patient arrived in the ER, in the emergency room, and they were the patient was psychotic or, or acting strange in a psychological way, the nurses or the docs would call my supervisee, the social worker, and he would sit down with the patient and try to figure out what was going on. But he would only spend about 15 minutes assessing the situation, and then he would quickly write up an assessment and give it to the nurses or the docs. So he would he would never provide counseling for these people. He might go back and check in with them later on and follow up, but but it wasn't psychotherapy. It was purely, uh, I mean, there were psychotherapy elements to it in that you know he would try to calm people down in a very short amount of time. But it was mainly assessment oriented and being part of the team, if that makes any sense. So from my understanding. Many social workers are trained as both as both psychotherapists and as caseworkers or brief assessors or whatever we want to call this other kind of work that social workers do. So as a result, they get less training in psychotherapy, but they also get trained in these other areas. But again, this is only based on my experience in Seattle. And uh, in Seattle, the main social work program is at the University of Washington. So it could be different in different areas. So take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. So if you want to be a psychotherapist and you also want training in these other areas, like what social workers are trained to do, then social work is for you. But if you just want to be a psychotherapist or a counselor or a therapist, then personally, I would not recommend getting a social work degree because you won't get the concentrated training that you'll get in an MFT program or in an MHC program. Because again, social workers are trained to do psychotherapy, but they're also trained to do all this other stuff, which kind of waters down their education in psychotherapy. Also, I think it, when I briefly looked at the U, University of Washington social work program site uh, before starting with this recording, and it looks like the social work master's degree is actually pretty short. So I can't imagine that the training is all that great when it comes to, or all that in-depth when it comes to training psychotherapists. Having said that, my therapist social is a social worker, and she's great. So, uh, But, you know, like I said, my personal recommendation, you would only go into social, you'd only get a social work master's if you were interested in studying a, a lighter version of psychotherapy in comparison to MFT and MHC, and you wanted to be trained to do all these other kinds of gigs, like in public health and hospitals and, and other kinds of gigs like that. Wraparound services, if you are familiar with that. Okay. So those are what we call the master's level clinicians. They're the MFTs, marriage and family therapists. They're the counselors, the mental health counselors, or the licensed professional counselors. And the social workers, 
And as I've been saying, they're all very they're all very similar, particularly the MFTs and MHCs. But there are some notable differences, as we've been talking about. Now, let's talk about doctoral programs. Now, I'm not going to talk about psychology yet. I'm, I'm going to talk about the other doctoral programs. Okay, doctoral programs. All of these master's level people, all the MFT, MHC, social worker people, they can go on to get their doctorate if they want. MFTs, social workers, counselors, each of them has their own particular doctorates. Marriage and family therapists can get a doctorate in marriage and family therapy. Mental health counselors can get a doctorate in counseling, and there are doctorates in social work. Often, master's level people will get their master's, and then they'll work for a while. Then they'll go back to get their doctorate after they've worked in the field for a while. Master's level people get doctorates for various reasons. They might want to further their understanding of psychotherapy. They might want to learn about research because master's level programs usually don't involve much, much research at all. Like in my program, we don't, we just, we just teach people how to read research. We don't teach people how to do research. So master's level people might want to get their doctorate in order to learn about more about research and maybe even learn how to conduct research. Master's level people might want to get their doctorate because they might want to learn about supervision. You, you can become a supervisor uh, with a doctorate um, or without a doctorate, but doctorates often provide super concentrated training regarding supervision, which makes you more qualified to be a supervisor and more likely to get a supervision job. Master's level people might want to get a doctorate because they want to teach. Again, you can teach without a doctorate, but if you have a doctorate, you're somewhat more likely to get a teaching job depending on the position. For example, for me, I taught for many years with just a master's, but in order to work my way up the ladder in academia, I needed to get a doctorate, so that's what I did. But I could have just stayed as a master's level therapist and never gotten my doctorate and taught for the rest of my career if I wanted to. But, you know, I wanted to work up the ladder in academia. And, you know, I learned a lot in my doctorate, so that was a good thing. Plus, you get to call yourself a doctor, which, of course, is super rad. Okay, so master's level clinicians will get their doctorates to learn about research, to learn about supervision, to learn about teaching, and to further their knowledge about psychotherapy. And also to bolster their resume so they can become eligible for better jobs or jobs that they aren't available, that aren't available to them otherwise. These sorts of doctorates usually honor your previous master's degree, meaning that you start off where your master's ended. So these programs are usually only open to people who already have their master's, and they usually take about two to three years to complete. They're often very similar to master's degree in that they have internships, they cost about the same as master's degrees, and they take about the same amount of time in general. And again, these doctoral students have typically already worked in the field for a while, and they're going back to school to further their career somehow. But there are exceptions to that rule. For instance, someone, technically speaking, could go to their undergraduate, graduate at 22, go, get it, go into their master's, graduate at 24, and then enter a doctorate in marriage and family therapy, and then by 27-ish, 
have a doctorate in marriage and family therapy. But that's extremely rare. Like, I don't know a single person who's who's done it like that. But you know, I'm sure that happens. My campus has a program that is like this. It's a doctorate in supervision and counselor education. It's it's on the um, mental health counselor side of the hall. It's what they call a KCREP program. It's accredited by KCREP, which means that it's within the field of mental health counseling, mental health counselors. But marriage and family therapists can attend this program as well. And it's a PhD program. And in, the, in this program, the students are learning how to conduct research and how to be a supervisor and how to be a college instructor or professor. So this PhD program on my campus is for people who already have the master's. It requires that you come in with a master's in marriage and family therapy, a master's in counseling, and I believe a master's in social work would also suffice. Not sure, though. Okay. So I've talked about the three, three of the main fields. I've talked about marriage and family therapy, mental health counseling, and social work. And I've talked about the master's degrees, and I've talked about the doctoral, doctoral doctorate degrees. And again, the, most of those people get their master's only, but many of them will go on to get their doctorates. But you really only need a master's to do that. Like, for instance, my therapist, who's a social worker, she doesn't have a doctorate. She just has a master's. And for myself, as a marriage and family therapist, I had a master's, and for many years, that's I never got my doctorate. I for 13 years I taught as an instructor in a master's program and I had a private practice that was thriving and didn't need to get my doctorate, but I did, which I'll go into more later. Okay, so let's move on to psychology. Psychology, unless you're in the field, you probably think psychology is what we've been talking about this whole time. And in some ways, in the broader sense, we have been. But psychology is actually a specific field within the field of psychotherapy, or even within the field of psychology, we could say. So psychology is the field, is the educational field that trains psychologists, licensed psychologists. So you have licensed marriage and family therapists, you have licensed mental health counselors or licensed professional counselors, you have licensed social workers. And there's various different names for social workers. There's licensed clinical social worker and licensed. There's other kinds of social workers, but they're all within the field of social work. And then you have licensed psychologists. And you have, and of course, you have psychiatrists and nurse practitioners, psychiatric nurses. So we're talking now about psychology, which is very different than counselors, therapists, and social workers. It's a, it's a very different field, even though... In essence, it's the same, but in terms of the way things are siloed in my industry, psychology likes to keep things very separate. And I could go into the history of education in my field as to why that is, but the the, the synopsis is that psychology is, is elitist, and um, uh, in the history, as, as master's level people started to emerge, they, they, they tried to keep them out, and as a result these other industries just emerged separate from psychology because psychology refused to let them in. That's a very, you know, crude way of describing what happened. But anyway, so let's move on to psychology. I got a doctorate in psychology 
So I know a lot about the field of psychology. It's a PsyD. I have a PsyD in psychology. Some doctorates are PhDs, and some doctorates are PsyDs. PhDs are, you know, philosophy doctorate degrees, which is sort of confusing because it's not a doc because you can have a doctorate in philosophy. <laughs> but um, anyway, PhD stands for a doctor of philosophy, and there's a whole history there as well. But anyway, you have PhDs and you have PsyDs, and PsyD stands for psychology doctorate. So I have a PsyD. The distinction between PhDs and PsyDs is very confusing, and there's a lot of bad information on the internet, believe me. I could go into the history of psychology and all the infighting, even within psychology itself, uh, never mind the fighting between psychology and marriage of family therapists, but um, I'll save time and say the following. If it's a PsyD program, then it's most likely geared toward providing services like psychotherapy and assessment. So CITES are, are more clinical or, shall we say, practical in some ways. Not practical, but clinical, providing services to clients. And if it's a PhD program in psychology, then it might be geared towards providing services like psychotherapy or, and assessment, or it might be geared towards pure research only, and won't train you in clinical services at all. So you have to do your homework here. If you're looking into psychology and you're trying to choose between PsyD and PhD, you have to look into the particular program. And don't listen to the internet when it comes to this sort of stuff. You actually have to go to the program and see exactly what courses they teach you in and exactly what they're designed to train you in. Because there are psychologists who are just like me, who are in private practice, who teach in an MFT program. So there are psychologists that are just like me. And there are psychologists who have never treated a single client and they've never even taken a class or maybe they've taken classes on psychotherapy, but they've certainly never seen a client. Uh, we actually had a guest on the show, Dr. Grubbs, who talked about psychopharmacology and he's a psychologist and he doesn't see clients at all. All he does is do research and lecture about psychopharmacology, about psychotropics like Prozac and that sort of thing. So his whole job is educating prescribers. So he, he can't even prescribe medication, but he talks with prescribers like psychiatrists and nurses about and, and primary care docs about psychotropics as a way of educating them, even though he himself can't prescribe them. But he's done a lot of research and he knows a lot about it. And so, and he's a psychologist. So the field of psychology is really broad, which I'll get more into later. So again, when you look in, when you, if you want to go into the field of psychology and you're trying to decide between PhD and PsyD, you really have to look into the program. A lot of sites on the internet try to make PsyD programs look bad, but it's all just petty BS and jealousy and infighting and stupidity. There's a, there's a lot of petty BS between the various professions and much of that petty crap is actually on university websites. You would think it wouldn't be there, but it is there. So it's hard to know what to believe. So again, if it's a PsyD program, then it's likely designed to train you to become a psychotherapist and an assessor person who can, who, who does psychological assessments. And if it's a PhD program, then it might train you be, to become a psychotherapist and an assessor, just like SID programs, or it's completely designed to, to train you as a researcher and as a professor and or as a professor. 
But even site programs have lots of courses in research and in teaching. So it's really hard to generalize. You really have to look at the, at the particular program. Okay. Doctorates in psychology do not honor master's degrees in general. For example, even though I had a master's in marriage and family therapy, and even though I had been practicing for several years, and even though I had been teaching and supervising for several years, when I applied to the PsyD program at Antioch University, Seattle, they did not care at all that I had any of that experience. It's, you know, it's really silly when you think about it. In order for education and experience to count within psychology, you have to be within the system of psychology. But I was in the system of marriage and family therapy. So, it, you know, my experience in marriage, so if I was a mental health counselor, if I was a social worker, all this experience would not count. It's just not valued in general. So when I started my PsyD, I was treated as if I was 22 and had just graduated with my bachelor's, even though I was 39 and I was already a full-time instructor and, and uh, you know, and had my master's and had a thriving private practice. And, and <laughs> I'm just talking to the patrons here, so I'm not talking to the general public, but I was more experienced than some of my instructors at that point, you know, and um, in some of my classes, that was a little hard to deal with, but, but I'll get more into that later. Um, for the most part, I really enjoyed my CID, uh time, but, um, but there was some weird aspects to it. And, and some of it I, I'll never talk about on this podcast, or at least not until I retire or something. I'm long past having to not burn bridges, but um, <laughs> anyway, now, many of you might be asking, why did I get my doctorate in psychology? Why didn't I get my doctorate in marriage and family therapy? Well, the answer is complicated, but in a nutshell, here's the story. I was working as a full-time instructor at Antioch in the MFT program. I was also in private practice. I was 39. Inc incidentally, I was also working on this podcast. This was 2010. And my mentor, Paul David, he who's been on the podcast before, he told me that he wanted me to run the master's program. He wanted me to be chair or program director. Paul David had founded the program 20 years ago, and he had built it from the ground up, and he had shepherded it along its way until it became the glorious program that it became. And he wanted to give that program over to me. He just, <laughs> out of all the people in the community who you know, he knows of, he wanted to give his program, his baby to me. It was a huge honor, but I needed to get my doctorate. I only had my master's at the program at the time because program directors and core faculty need to have their doctorate. It's just a policy in academia. Academia is snooty that way. So I decided to get my doctorate, but I didn't want to move to another area. I wanted to live downtown, which is where I was living at the time, which was directly across the street from my university. <laughs> and my university had a doctoral program. They didn't have the PhD program that I talked about earlier. They only had the PsyD program. And I needed a doctorate, and that doctorate would have to be in psychology, the PsyD program. And since I was an employee at Antioch, and I would get 50% off tuition-ish, and since a PsyD costs about $130,000 in tuition alone, getting 50% off, that was, a, that was a significant savings. 
And at the time, my campus, like I said, didn't have the PhD program in supervision and counselor education, which probably would have been a better choice for me at the time. But this was seven years ago, and it didn't exist at the time. Uh, because that PhD program, the P- the PhD program in supervision and counselor education, that would have honored my master's, which would have meant half the time spent and half the money spent and half the effort spent to get my doctorate. So at the time, my campus only had the PsyD program. And since I got a huge discount and since it was across the street, I decided to enroll in that program. So I basically have two degrees from different professions. I have my master's in marriage and family therapy, and I have my doctorate in psychology. Incidentally, the marriage and family therapy degree is a psychology master's with a concentration in marriage and family therapy. Um, And incidentally, I also have a master's in psychology because um, I had to start over in the PsyD program, right, at the bachelor level. And as I worked through about halfway through my PsyD program, you can get a terminal master's if you want. So I basically have two masters and one doctorate, if that makes any sense. But anyway, in the end, I'm like I said, I'm really glad I enrolled in the C, in the PsyD program because it exposed me to a wide variety of topics that is the world of psychology, which is much broader than the world of marriage and family therapy or mental health counseling or social work. For example, I learned all about how to conduct an, uh, an assessment. I learned, you know, inkblot, Rorschach tests. I learned about IQ and all these, you know, I learned about forensic. I took a whole year of forensic psychology and about how to assess whether or not someone's lying in court or not and all this, you know, like like super scientific stuff like that. Um, typically, psychologists are the only ones who can give these sort of psychological assessments. Um, so, uh, again, as a side note, I just want to remind people, the term psychologist or licensed psychologist is reserved for people who get a doctorate in psychology that is designed to train you as a psychologist. (laughs) So some doctorates in psychology are not designed to train you as a psychologist. So this is all just part of the confusion, (laughs) but programs that are geared toward uh, the American psychological association. um, These are uh, programs that train psychologists. (laughs) So anyway, so uh, technically speaking, the only people who can call themselves psychologists are people who are licensed psychologists in that state. And those are people who went to a program that was geared toward the American Psychological Association and was specifically geared to train you as a licensed psychologist in that state. So you, so uh, PhD programs in psychology, PsyD programs are not necessarily designed to train you to be a licensed psychologist in that state. So it's all super effed. But anyway, um, so psychologists are licensed psychologists are the only ones who can provide psychological assessments. You know, when someone needs to be fully evaluated for a school or for the courts, generally speaking, only psychologists can provide those assessments. And you can make a lot of money doing these assessments, but it's really hard work. And you need to get a lot of extra uh, training and education beyond your doctorate to really get good at it. But some people love it. I didn't love it at all because it felt like homework to me. It was really tedious at times and it didn't involve actually helping people. Uh, it was assessing people. You're not actually trying to help them. In fact, if you did engage in psychotherapy with them, that would be a, an unethical multiple relationship. I felt like assessing, um, I felt like I was only doing it so I could make money 
And I would rather make money while helping other people, which is more fulfilling to me. But anyway, many of my colleagues provide assessments and they really love it. You know, you might assess a teenager for ADHD, a full five-hour assessment that involves talking to the teachers, you know, not just a diagnostic interview, but you run a bunch of tests to determine whether or not someone has ADHD or an executive function problem. You might assess someone to see if they're fit to stand trial. You might assess someone to see if they were insane at the time of the crime. You might assess someone to see if they can be released from prison. You know, maybe they're a sexual offender and you need to assess them as to whether or not they're going to reoffend. There are many gigs in the field of psychological assessment, and most of those jobs are for psychologists who get, you know, who are trained as licensed psychologists. Psychologists are trained also in research. So, like I said, they get trained in assessment, which is really specific to psychologists. And psychologists are also trained in research. But as I was saying earlier, all the doctorate degrees uh, train you in research, MFT, counseling, social work, they all train you in research, but psychology doctorates also. Some programs are geared more towards research than others. For example, the program I went through at Antioch was not focused on research. It wasn't super focused, but I did take like, I don't know eight courses on research or something, you know, qualitative research, quantitative statistics, research design, dissertation, all that kind of stuff. You know, I conducted my own research study, which was my dissertation, which is usually required for any doctorate, whether that be in psychology or MFT or counseling or social work. But um, uh, so in my program, since it's a site program, it's mainly focused on clinical work. It wasn't so focused on, on research, and yet I still took a shit ton of, of classes on research. But other programs, like the program at the University of Washington, is super focused on research and not focused at all on clinical work. So from my understanding, students in the psychology doctorate at the University of Washington are not trained to provide psychotherapy or to provide assessments. They're trained in research, which, uh, um, you know, as I said earlier, is a tough world to get a job in. It's not possible, but it can it can be tough. Um, it's much tougher than getting a job providing clinical service for clients. Let's just put it that way. Now, I have to say I'm not super familiar with the world of research, but I have a number of friends in the area who work in research, and um, I know it's it's hard. And a lot of them end up working in clinical areas to make ends meet, but not all of them. But a lot of the famous psychologists are people who took this route, who became researchers and worked at a premier research facility like the University of Washington, Marsha Linehan, um, you know, people like that. These people, well, actually, I don't know Linehan's doctorate. I assume, anyway. <laughs> okay. So if it's a clinical program like the one I went through, the students are trained in psychotherapy as well as research and assessing. Um, they're trained uh, in these three areas, therapy, research, and assessments. Other areas I was trained in, in my PsyD program, were biology. I learned a lot about the brain and about psychotropics and other biological topics. Not a lot, but enough to help me help my clients. 
I learned a lot about the history of psychology. I learned a lot about the philosophy of the self and about um, psychology in that way. But that was kind of particular to the professor I had, Dr. Phil Cushman. There were some classes on supervision and on ethics and on culture and society. But the majority of my classes were in psychotherapy theory and in psychotherapy practice, or they were on assessment or they were on research. So again, my, my psyche was a lot, of, a lot of therapy classes, a lot of assessment classes, and a lot of research classes. So for me, all of the psychotherapy courses were boring, and uh, I'm going to say below me since I already knew most of it. But the biology courses were completely new to me. And the assessment courses were completely new to me. And the research courses were totally new to me. So I didn't benefit from the psychotherapy courses, but I did benefit from the assessment and the biology and the research courses. So if you want to provide assessments, if that's your thing, you want to provide assessments, then you probably need to become a psychologist, which means you need to go to a program that is geared towards training psychologists. That's the key. You have to, you have to ask them, is this, is this program... At the end of my program, will I have to take any additional courses to become a licensed psychologist? That's the key. Because some programs could say, yeah, we're training you to become a psychologist, but the, but the small print is you need to take you know, 14 other courses to actually qualify for licensure in the state or something. So you really want to make sure. And if you want to become a researcher and not a clinician, then you probably need to go to a psychology program that focuses on research and not on clinical training like the program at the University of Washington. But the reverse can also be true. Uh, there are people who went to my PsyD program who wanted to become researchers and were on that track. The thing is, is when you're in a, in a psychologist training program, there's so many different options in terms of, or at least my program at Antioch, there were a lot of options in terms of what sort of areas you focused on. And there were people who didn't really want to become a therapist and they really wanted to become researchers. And so even though it's not a program geared towards that, people sort of made it that way for them. And, um, and that's an option. That's totally an option. So it, it all depends on the competencies you build and the connections you make and the works that you, you know, offer up. So, so that's confusing. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of options and wiggle room in there. But if you want to become a therapist, if you, so if you want to become, uh, if you want to do assessments, you got to become a psychologist for sure. And you got to go to one of the clinical programs like the PsyD program I went to. If you want to become a researcher, you can also go to one of the clinical psychology programs or you can go to the, obviously you can go to the concentrated research oriented psychologist programs or you can get a doctorate in marriage and family therapy or a doctorate in counseling or a doctorate in social work um, or, you know, become a psychiatrist. And you can also become a researcher in that way as well because all those doctorates train you in research. I don't know about psychiatry, but I know in psychology and marriage and family therapy, counseling, social work, they all, those doctorates all teach you in research. And so um, if you uh, get trained in it and then after graduation, you make all the right moves, you can become a researcher. So you don't have to become a psychologist to become a researcher, but you have to become a psychologist to do assessments. That's that's one thing I can say uh, in general. <laughs> um, 
But if you want to become a therapist, which is what most people want, which is what Patron Gage is talking about, he wants to become a therapist, he wants to help people, then you really have many, many options. You can become a marriage and family therapist. You become you can become a mental health counselor or a licensed professional counselor, or you can become a social worker, although I don't recommend that track considering that some programs, if not most, don't provide as much training as others do. But if you become a social worker, you're also trained to do these other sorts of gigs like hospital and public health and Department of Social Services, Child Protective Services, that kind of stuff. Um, also, you can become trained as a psychologist if you want to be a therapist. So, again, if you want to be a therapist, you can be any of any of the any other professions. If you want to provide psychotherapy, you can be a marriage and family therapist, mental health counselor, social worker, psychologist, psychologist, a psychiatrist, or a nurse practitioner. All of them provide psychotherapy. All of them are trained in psychotherapy. But Remember that MFTs, marriage and family therapists, and uh, MHCs and social workers are all master's level people. So the training is at least half the time and money and headache. And you can always go back to get your doctorate if you want, if you're an MFT, MHC, or social worker. So when people tell me that they want to become a therapist and that's all they want to do, I usually recommend that they get their master's in MFT or MHC. Because, again, social work is not necessarily as in-depth in terms of psychotherapy. And then if they want to get their doctorate later, that they have that option if they want. Now, again, all this information is for the United States. I know that the term psychologist is actually used for master's level people in other countries, so keep that in mind. Also, just to add to the confusion, you can become a psychologist by getting doctorate degrees in other areas like education. So isn't that weird? So you can get a doctorate in education and become a psychologist. <laughs> so there's that confusion. But those situations aren't extremely common, at least anecdotally. But you should know that the world of psychology and psychotherapy has many exceptions to the rules, as if it wasn't confusing enough already as it is. Also, the term psychologist in the United States can be applied to master's level people if they are working for a school in a particular capacity, so there's that weirdness, too. Okay, so that's the world of psychology. Um, oh, I, I should mention that psychologists have other job opportunities, too, other than psychotherapy, assessing, and research, um, and, and teaching, and supervising. Like working for the government. There's a lot of government jobs, or the CIA. The CIA will hire psychologists. Or working in I.O., which stands for Industrial Organizational Psychology, which has to do with uh, manipulating workers to work harder. <laughs> At least it was historically. Or you can work in neuropsychology, or you can work in health psychology and other areas. Now, this isn't to say that non-psychologists don't work in these areas, but Psychologists tend to get the jobs in these areas because their training is much more extensive in these other areas, like industrial organizational psychology, neuropsychology, health psychology. Well, health psychology and, and health uh, and health and wellness is actually um, within other fields too, like counseling and psych and marriage and family therapy. But now, I guess I should back up and say that. Um, just to make sure that there's no confusion here. 
if you're a psychologist and you're providing psychotherapy services, you're providing counseling services, your work is often very similar to the work of marriage and family therapists and mental health counselors and social workers and psychiatrists and nurse practitioners. Basically, among all the different professions, when it comes to the provision of psychotherapy or talk therapy or even art therapy or play therapy or any of the forms of therapy, there's really no difference between the professions. And some people uh, who don't know better will disagree with me, but I'm here to tell you that that's true. A psychiatrist who provides cognitive behavioral therapy is indistinguishable from a social worker who provides cognitive behavioral therapy which is in, you know, the same with uh, narrative therapy or solution focused or family therapy or couples therapy. There, there's no difference. It all just depends on how much training you have and what your approach is and how talented of a therapist you are and, and how, what sort of style you have. For example, for my dissertation, I interviewed a bunch of experienced clinicians, and I and I purposely interviewed people from various different professions. I interviewed psychologists and marriage and family therapists and counselors and and other people, pastoral people, and I found that they were all the same. There was no there was no particular difference, at least in my qualitative study, between the different professions. They all generally talked similarly about their clients, and so. So if you're a psychologist and you're and you're providing psychotherapy services then you're probably very similar to the other professions. Now what psychologists will say is they're much more science oriented or in, in, you know they're much more evidence based than the other professions and maybe there's been research on that but anecdotally I haven't found that to be true. I know psychologists that are super into evidence-based services and I know psychologists who are super not into evidence-based services and I know marriage and family therapists who are super into evidence-based services like super into it and I know marriage and family therapists who are super not into that. So like I said it's really hard to differentiate when it comes to the provision of psychotherapy between the different professions. Also, I should mention that psychologists can specialize in the same areas as, as MFTs and MHCs and social workers. They you know, can specialize in infants. They can specialize in adults or couples or, or depression or ADHD or autism. It's all, all the psychotherapists can, can, are free to specialize in whatever they want. They can all become art therapists or drama therapists or play therapists or psychoanalysts or pastoral people which is connected to religion or dance movement therapists and on and on. So there's a lot of overlap between the professions when we talk about psychotherapy and all of the specialties. Okay. So that's psychology. We've already talked about, we've already talked about MFT, MHC and social work. There are the last two professions we're going to talk about are psychiatry and psychiatric nursing, which I know very little about because these professions are, in terms of the way my industry is situated, they're, they're quite far from me. But I think most people understand that these professions involve a lot of education, so I, I don't need to go over that. Um, they often, I think, involve starting at the undergraduate level. You know, if you're going to become a psychiatrist, you might need to start taking pre-med courses when you're an undergrad. So... Most people know this, but in case you don't, psychiatrists and, and psychiatric nurses, these are people who work in the medical field, which is different than the fields we've been talking about so far. The fields we've been talking about so far are, are psychology, 
marriage and family therapy, mental health counseling, and social work. So all those are considered individual fields. You have the field of marriage and family therapy, you have the field of mental health counseling, you have the field of social work, and you have the field of psychology. But those fields are very similar when it comes to jumping across to psychiatrists and psychiatric nurses who are in the medical field or the, or the biology field. And psychiatrists are medical doctors, which means they start out like all other medical doctors and then later specialize in psychology as their education progresses. So some psychiatrists started out in med school thinking they were going to be a surgeon or they were going to work in an ER or they were going to work in general medicine. And then they took a course on psychiatry or something and that inspired them to become a psychiatrist. Also, advanced nurse practitioners or psychiatric nurse, nurses are are very similar to master's level therapists, like my you know like the way I was before I got my doctorate. In that, advanced nurse practitioners, their degrees take around the same amount of time, like two to three years, um, and probably have a similar cost. But I'm not sure about that. Now, the big difference that people always want to know about is that psychiatrists and psychiatric nurses, they can prescribe medication, whereas the others cannot. Um, you know, psychologists can't, MFTs can't, MHCs can't, social workers can't prescribe medication. Unless you're a psychologist with a particular training in a few states in the United States, then you can prescribe some meds. So there's that confusion. But anyway. Psychiatrists and psychiatric nurses can prescribe medication and they can provide psychotherapy for their clients. But their training can be somewhat limited regarding psychotherapy because they have to fill their time with a lot of biology, right? So again, when you train to become the, – the most concentrated training in psychotherapy are marriage and family therapists and mental health counselors. Almost every single class that they take is geared toward what – it is like to be a psychotherapist. And like I said, social worker gets psychotherapy education in addition to other uh, job uh, training. Psychologists get training in a lot of areas, assessment, research, um, history, biology, and psychotherapy. Psychiatrists get trained in, you know, psychiatrists are full-fledged medical doctors just like your primary doctor except they specialize in the mind and in psychiatry and nurses are get a lot of uh, medical knowledge in addition to being trained as psychotherapists whereas marriage family therapists mental health counselors they get a pure education experience as 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 helpers as talk therapists now some would argue with that and say that well if you're getting a doctorate in psychology, you're in school for twice as long, so it all works out in the end that you're getting just as much training in psychology. And and that just depends on the program. But I can tell you from my own personal experience that even though in my PsyD, we had a number of classes on how to become a psychotherapist, I can tell you that because the students are, are bombarded with so many different topics, the the training on psychotherapy in my program was not so great. It was it be also because think about this. When you have a program like a psychology program, PsyD program, you have so many bases you have to cover by the instructors. So you you know, you hire ten professors and you have to have some professors that are good at assessment, who are, you know, super good at assessment. They have to be like super experts in assessment. You have to have some professors that are super experts in statistics and research and some in 
the history of psychology and and so there's all these different uh, very specific um, area in biology so there's very specific areas and then you might have one or two professors that are good in psychotherapy so so the the thing is is most of your professors in a PsyD program are not specialized and may not even know how to conduct psychotherapy. There were professors in my in my PsyD program who had never seen a client as a talk therapist. So whereas in my MFT program, every single professor is a clinician and not only just a clinician, but an expert clinician. So that's so all so all of our guns are pointing in the same direction. Now on the on the plus side for psychology, you're being trained in a whole bunch of different areas, which is kind of cool, which I liked about my PsyD program. But on the downside, you're being trained in too many areas to really focus. <laughs> Whereas when you're getting trained in MFT and MHC, you're very focused. And all your professors are experts in that field. And everyone, I mean, with like a few exceptions, like in my MFT program, the person who teaches our research class is not a clinician. She's actually been on the podcast before, McCall Gordon. She is not a clinician. She just knows a lot about research. And so uh, so there's some exceptions to that rule. But anyway, so as you can tell, I'm a little biased in some ways, but I, I'm i speaking from experience. And um, so, you know, I don't know, take what I'm saying with a grain of salt, just based on the fact that I'm a human being who has biases. Okay. So having said all that, I'll say that if you want to seek out a psychotherapist and someone refers you a psychiatrist, I'm not going to say that that's a bad referral because some psychiatrists are excellent at psychotherapy. So, and like I said, I go to a social worker for psych- for therapy. So it, it, it's, it's just, uh, this is just information for you in terms of the training, because the other thing I'll sh- I, I want to say that I haven't really emphasized yet is that most of my education in the field occurred outside of school. It occurred after graduation. It occurred as I'm researching something on my own or interacting with clients on my own. And so the the education that you get, even though it, it might be deficient in some areas or might concentrate in a particular way, it's really up to you as a professional to decide what you want to do. For instance, there are psychiatrists who are excellent at family therapy, even though my field is family therapy. I, I work, you know, I teach and work in the field of marriage and family therapy, but there are psychiatrists that are better family therapists than I am. And that's, but that's not because of their training in, in all likelihood. That's because that particular psychiatrist decided for him or herself that they wanted to be really proficient in that and really sought education, training, supervision in that area. And that's the wonderful thing about our, our field is that it, it, there's so many options available to you. So anyway, but if you want to prescribe medication, then you need to become a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse. And you probably need to decide this before you finish your undergrad, because you might need to take a bunch of biology classes in your undergrad time. Whereas that's not true for psychology or the other um, for MFT, MHC, social work. You, there usually aren't undergrad courses you need to take, maybe one or two, but not like it is in medical school. Now, you should know that psychiatrists tend to make a lot more money than all the other professions we've talked about. So if we're going to talk about money, uh, 
Uh, I didn't talk about psychologist money. Um, psychologists make, in general, a little bit more than MFTs, MHCs, and social workers. But there's a lot of variety in terms of how much they make. So on average, psychologists make more, which makes sense. They have a lot more education, right? Um, and they're a lot more in debt <laughs> from, from school tuition. But So they make a little bit more, but not that much more. It's, it's not that much. It's probably you know 15% or something more, something like that, 20%. And that's on average, which means that there are plenty of mental health counselors who earn more than the average psychologist. So, uh, so you should know that. But psychiatrists can make a lot of money because for whatever reason, the way our medical system and health insurance reimbursement system works is a psychiatrist can cram a lot of medication consultations into an hour and charge hundreds of hundreds of dollars for each of those consultations. So, um, so psychiatrists can make a lot more money than all the other professions. A friend of mine, she's a psychiatrist and she may, I know she makes a ton of dough. <laughs> she also owns her own, her own clinic. So there's that, but I think she owns her own clinic because she made a lot of money being a psychiatrist. But, but having said that, when I talk to her, she tells me that she spends all of her time dealing with severely mentally ill people and their medication and all their dramas, and she spends no time on psychotherapy, even though she could do psychotherapy. But it, it's hard when you're in a job and you're, and you're being called upon for medication consultations so often. It's hard for some psychiatrists to feel like they have enough energy to provide psychotherapy. Because psychotherapy it can be very draining at times. So... Um, uh, yeah. So she, you know, she, she tell me, she'd be like, well, also not only do I feel like I just don't have the space to provide psychotherapy, but it's hard to pass up all that money. <laughs> and, um, incidentally, she's also not super fulfilled in her job. You know, she, she has kind of a bad attitude about her patients and she wonders if she's doing any good. So, you know, there's pros and cons. You get a lot of money, but you also not, you know, you're you're helping some people with medication, but you're also just kind of putting out fires with a lot of people. Now, having said all that, I'm sure there are psychiatrists who love their jobs, even though they're providing medication advice only. So, I just want to make sure that that's you know what what uh, what everyone knows, but. Again, from my experience, most psychiatrists do not provide psychotherapeutic services. Um, they're mostly doing medication, partially because there's a huge shortage of psychiatrists. And so all of us psychotherapists need the psychiatrists to, and the nurse practitioners to uh, help us out with medication help. And so, um, so that's another reason why psychiatrists can make a lot of money is because in, often there's a shortage of psychiatrists. And so... As soon as you open up a practice, you'll be instantly full. In my field, people are constantly saying, "Does anyone know of a psychiatrist who's good and isn't full?" You know, it's 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 a common refrain. So, um, now this is just my experience. So take it with a grain of salt. Um, having said that, I will say that psychiatric nurses, in my anecdotal experience, actually provide a lot of psychotherapy. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why, but I, in my experience, um, 
psychiatric. Maybe they don't get paid as much for med, med management. I don't know. But um, a lot of the psychiatric nurses that I know um, are primarily their they're therapists, their talk therapists. A friend of mine, her therapist is a nurse practitioner. And my friend loves her therapist because her her nurse practitioner therapist is great to talk to, but also because her her therapist can prescribe her meds, which is you know really convenient for her. Um, now, how much do nurse practitioners make? Psychiatric nurses make in general they make a little bit more. They probably make about the same amount as psychologists do. Um, again, on average, there's probably give or take 10 grand or something, but psychiatric nurses. So, so the pay scale is for MFTs, MHCs, social workers. I would say the average salary, uh, this is, this is based on actual numbers, but I'm just sort of back of the napkinning this for marriage and family therapists, social workers, uh, mental health counselors with or without doctorates, by the way, the, Average is probably again for people who are who are you know five years plus into the field. Their salaries probably are around sixty to eighty thousand dollars. If you're a psychologist, it's probably more like seventy to ninety. The same with a nurse practitioner. I'm not sure on the nurse practitioner, but they might make a little bit more than that. I'm not as familiar with that. And again, this is average. So there are people who make a lot more than that. There are people who make less than that. I mean, I know, you know, psychologists who are making like 30000 a year. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of variety. It really just depends on the sort of job you have and, the, and if you're in private practice in particular, this, how much sort of effort you put into it and what you sort of get out of it. And psychiatrists, I, I don't even want to guess how much they make. <laughs> uh, hundreds of thousands, uh, if things go according to plan. Um, so, um, but you know, they're in school for a long time. I mean, med school is no joke, right? Uh, so, you know, there's that. Anyway, again, I have no idea. Maybe psychiatrists only make 150 grand a year. I don't know, but it's clearly more than all the other professions. I I know that. Now. Some of you might want to become a psychotherapist and a college instructor, like what I do. There's a lot of fun in this career situation. You know, I teach part of the week, and I supervise people part of the week, and I provide therapy part of the week. It's a great mix that never gets boring or tedious for me. The, the road to this sort of career can take many paths. You can take any of the paths I've talked about to get there. You can get there by getting a master's in marriage and family therapy and then teach, which is what I did. You can get a doctorate in any of the fields and teach. As a program director, I'll tell you that the secret to getting the job, getting a job as an instructor is that it all depends on who you know. Nearly all the people I hire in my program are people that I, I knew personally. Now, not all programs work this way. In fact, I'm guessing I'm in the minority. But, but many, um, I would say most programs at least have an element of this. Maybe you know someone who puts in a good word for you and you become an adjunct instructor, which is kind of like the lowest level of instructor. Then a full-time position opens up as an instructor and the program director really likes you because they've interacted with you a bunch. 
and they decide to bump you up to a full-time position. I see this all the time in my university, and I see it at other universities too. Now, getting a doctorate will help if you want to become an instructor in a master's program, um, and you need a doctorate to teach a doctoral program, and you might even need a specific doctorate to teach in a doctoral program. Um, But you don't necessarily need it. But getting a doctorate will help. Also, people tend to teach within their profession, so you want to think about what degree you get there. Psychologists tend to teach in psychology, and marriage and family therapists with marriage and family therapy degrees tend to teach in the field of marriage and family therapy. But there's a good amount of crossover. For instance, in my PsyD program, there was a marriage and family therapist, Phil Cushman, my mentor, the super genius in my PsyD program. He was a licensed marriage and family therapist. He wasn't a psychologist. And uh, I'm a person who has a PsyD, a psychology doctorate, but I teach in a marriage and family therapy program as well as an MHC program. I also teach art therapists and drama therapists too. But in general, if you want to teach in, say, MHC, you should probably get your degrees in the MHC system. It just, But it really just kind of depends. Okay. So we've talked about the different professions. We've talked about marriage and family therapy, mental health counseling. We've talked about social work. We've talked about psychology or psychologists. We've talked about psychiatrists, and we've talked about psychiatric nurses. Now, let's talk about accreditation of the program. So up until this point, I've just been talking about the different silos within my profession as a way to help you understand how much it costs, what sort of jobs they train you for, what are the considerations, and it's, as you can tell, it's a big pile of mud. (laughs) It's very confusing, but, you know, at least... I have told you what I know. But let's talk about accreditation of programs. Most people will tell you that you have to go to an accredited program and that you should avoid non-accredited programs. But it's really more complicated than that. Uh, I'll tell you a full disclosure. My program is accredited by the highest uh, marriage and family therapy accrediting body, which is called COAMFT or C-O-A-M-F-T-E. So my program has the highest accreditation possible in my field. So if anything, you would think I would be biased for accredited programs, but I'm here to tell you that it's not that easy. Some accredited programs are terrible, frankly, and some non-accredited programs are great. But in general, if a, cre- if a program is accredited, it's probably better than the non-accredited programs. You know, Because if it's accredited, it's an indication that the director and the instructors and the staff they have rigorous standards for themselves and rigorous standards for the students. But that doesn't mean it's a good program. And it also doesn't mean that not accredited programs are bad and have lower standards. So there's confusion. So uh, the other thing you should know is there are different accrediting bodies depending on the profession. So within um, marriage and family therapy, like I said, we have COAMFT. Within MHC, they have KCREP. Within psychology, they have APA, which is American Psychological Association. In social work, they have the CSWE. And I don't know the accrediting bodies for psychiatry and nursing, but I'm sure they have them. But if you go to an accredited program, if you go to an accredited program, there are some notable difference, for ex- uh, notable benefits. Sorry, <laughs> it's getting a little late here. We're, what, two hours in the program here? Okay. So, for example... A benefit of going to my program, which is co-empty accredited, 
A benefit is the graduates can waive half of the necessary post-grad hours for licensure in Washington State. So it's kind of complicated. But in other words, because our graduates come from an accredited program, it's easier for them to get licensed after graduation. But that doesn't mean that graduates from other programs can't get licensed. It just means it might take a little more time for them or might be a little harder for them. Now, having said that, some non-accredited programs are not designed to license you as a clinician. This is very important. So if the program is, so if you go to a co-AMFD accredited program, it's guaranteed that that program is designed to get you licensed, which is the whole reason why you want to get education in this field. You want to become licensed. Unless you don't, and then you don't want to care about that. I mean, some people get, some people want to get a, you know, master's in counseling and they never want to become a therapist. I don't understand those people, but there are people like that. But anyway, so thing you should know is that if a program is not accredited, then they might not be designed to get you licensed. And for 99% of the jobs in our field, you need to become licensed. So if you go to a non-accredited program, you, you need to be very careful that that program is actually designed to prepare you for licensure. But if the program is accredited, then by definition, they're designed to prepare you for licensure. But there are exceptions to that rule too. So there's confusion there. So you need to do your homework there. You just really need to ask them specifically. As an example, my PsyD program, my doctorate, was not accredited by the APA. But my uh, master's program is accredited by COAMPT. But my, my doctorate, my psychology doctorate, was not accredited. So I went, I went to what you would call a non-accredited psychology doctorate program. But that has little impact on me and all the other graduates. All of us can still get licensed as a psychologist in Washington State and in other states. And all of us are still eligible for the vast majority of jobs in psychology and in other areas including me becoming program director, right? They, you know, the fact that my doctorate wasn't from an accredited APA program didn't prevent me from becoming program director, right? Or uh, core faculty. Now, there are some jobs that do require people to come from APA accredited programs, but they're pretty uh, limited. But if that's your goal is to work at one of those limited jobs, then you want to know that so that you can go to a accredited program, but it's pretty rare. Okay. Now, some of you uh, might wonder about this, but I should tell you that I never got my psychologist license. So I'm not a licensed psychologist, even though I could get it. All I need to do is take the test, which is no small feat because it's a, I don't know. I don't know. It's a very difficult test, but I would, you know, have to study quite a bit for that test, but that's all I would need to do. But I, I never, I've never done it. I graduated almost three years ago, two and a half years ago. The reason why I don't have my psychologist license is because I don't need it. I have a license in marriage and family therapy, and I've had a license in marriage and family therapy since 1999, so almost 20 years. And I don't need a license in psychology. You know, many insurance companies or all the insurance companies pay for my services, so become a, a psychologist wouldn't change that. Psychologists, might, they might pay me a little bit more, but not a huge amount. And I'm also totally not interested in providing assessments, which is you know a thing that licensed psychologists are allowed to do. And 
my job doesn't require me to be licensed in psychology. So there's really no reason for me to become licensed in psychology, even though I could do it if I took the test. And maybe one day I will just to see what it's like. <laughs> but I have a lot of other things I want to do like this podcast. And I've thought about making a podcast about that experience. <laughs> like as I'm studying, I could turn all that into uh, episodes. It's like two birds with one stone, like study for the test and then make an episode about what I just studied. And I don't know. We'll see. But anyway, getting back to accreditation, some programs will say they're uh, quote unquote accredited, but they're being tricky because they're not accredited by the accrediting body that really counts. For example, my university, Antioch University, is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission, or the HLC. So let's just say my program wasn't accredited by COAMFT, which is uh, the accreditation that really counts. I could still claim that my program was quote-unquote accredited because my overall university was accredited by HLC. But that accreditation, HLC, has nothing to do with the clinical field, so it doesn't really matter. So you have to make sure that the program is accredited by the appropriate accrediting body. Again, the MFT world is COAMFT, and MHC is KCREP. Uh, art therapy programs should be approved by the American Art Therapy Association. Each profession has its own particular accrediting body, like I was saying. But to make it even more confusing, there are different accrediting bodies within each profession. For example, in marriage and family therapy, the main accreditor is COAMFT, but there are other accrediting bodies, like the International Accrediting Commission for Systemic Therapy Education, or the IACSTE. So if it's a, if it's a marriage and family therapy program, they might be accredited by one of the other uh, family therapy accreditors. <laughs> um, but again, each profession has a primary accrediting body that's emerged over the years, so I would look for that. And like I said earlier, being accredited doesn't guarantee quality, but being non-accredited doesn't mean they lack quality either. But if you have a choice, I would choose an accredited program over a non-accredited program. Like in Seattle, there are something like, I don't know, three or four co-amped accredited programs and a handful of non-accredited programs. And to me, it's like, why would you choose one of the non-accredited programs? It doesn't make any sense. So um, so if you have a choice, I would choose an accredited program in general. But you might look into it after following my advice and asking around. You might find that the non-accredited program is uh, best for you. So you just have to do your homework. But let me provide an example. There's a non-accredited program in my area and I have supervised a number of postgrads from this program, and I can tell you from my experience that these students are seriously undereducated. So sometimes um, these these people will come to me because they know they didn't get enough education in their master's, and they sort of regret going to that non-accredited school, and so they come to me hoping to sort of uh, get the education that they should have got. So again, if you have a choice, go to an accredited program. Um, and there are plenty of COAMFT and KCREP programs all over the U.S. I'm guessing there are a lot of CSWE programs. and So there, there's plenty of accredited programs around. Now, when it comes to APA, though, in psychology, the APA is pretty stingy about giving out um, accreditation uh, to different psychology programs because they're elitist. It's sort of a long story, but 
if you're a psychology program, it's super hard to get accredited. Not in that you have to be really good, but because APA is just super stingy about accrediting programs. They're just like arbitrarily, even though you're super awesome, they won't accredit you just because politically they just don't want to for some reason. Now, from what I understand, the PsyD program at Antioch is perhaps on the verge of actually becoming APA accredited. But So if a program is not COAMFT accredited or not KCREP accredited, then you really just have to wonder what's going on because although accreditation in, in COAMFT and KCREP is difficult, it's not impossible. Um, it's achievable by a program that you know puts their mind to it. Whereas in psychology, even if a program put their mind to it and really succeeded, it's uh, they still might not get APA accreditation. So that's one accreditation that you have to sort of look at a little differently. Um, so for instance, my PsyD program, it's not accredited by APA, but my suspicion is it's just as rigorous as the APA accredited programs. Anyway, now let me comment a little bit on religious programs because I get asked this question a lot. Some programs are religious-based or faith-based or affiliated with a religion. For example, in my area, four of my competitors are religious programs. Seattle Pacific University, Seattle University, Pacific Lutheran University, and the Seattle School of Therapy and, and Theology. I can't remember the full name, but Seattle School is what they call it. Um, Seattle Pacific University is what I might call general Christian. Seattle University is a Jesuit school. Pacific Lutheran University is obviously Lutheran. And the Seattle School appears to be evangelical, I think, or just general Christian. Now, if you're looking for a Christian experience while you're in graduate school, then these schools are for you. But if you're not looking for a Christian experience, then I would seriously consider avoiding these schools. I've had students who have transferred from these sorts of religious programs, and they will come to my program, and they will tell me stories about how instructors who would openly and actively say homophobic things and, um, you know, hetero uh, sexist things and just, you know, heterosexist. Um, yeah, heterosexist things. Why is this, why are these words hard for me right now? Uh, it's late and it's uh, a long podcast. So, which I will keep saying. But anyway, my point is, is that there's a, there's a lot of uh, discrimination uh, and prejudice and uh, transphobia, homophobia that, that can occur in some of these religious programs. Now, this isn't all religious programs. There are certainly religious programs that are not like this, but there are some that are. And that's usually what I hear from people is that, um, you know, they weren't careful enough. Now, I know just from the start, I just want to say, I know gay people who have attended religious programs and they've really liked it. But I also know gay people and trans people who have attended religious programs and they quit the program because they felt marginalized and, um, and harmed. Also, you should know that many of these programs force you to sign a statement that says you believe in God or in Jesus or something. Now, again, if that's your thing, then go for it. But if it's not your thing, then I would be careful. Also, each university and program has their own approach to religion. Some are more religious than others. Some are more conservative than others. So, again, you have to do your homework there. But but with with this one... Um, 
I would, with this element, if you're doing your homework on this, I would definitely not trust the website or the marketing materials. I would actually ask an alumnus about the whole, the thing. I would actually go to an actual graduate and say, how is religion dealt with in this university? Because I've heard of people, uh, you know, enrolling in a program in one of these faith-based programs. And then later they discover that they had been tricked into believing that the program wasn't as religious as it was. And again, if that's your thing, then go for it. But if it's not, then you really just have to beware. Okay. Now let's talk about how hard it is to get into programs. Cause that's another question I get asked. They'll say like, is it, how hard is it? You know, will I, will they accept me? Now, every program is different, but in general, it's really not that hard to get into a therapy or a psychology or a counseling or a social work program. I don't know about medical school. That's a whole other field that I'm just not too aware of. I suspect it's not super easy. But in terms of marriage and family therapy and counseling and social work and psychology, it's it's not that hard. Now, this is just anecdotal, but... I'm, I'm guessing if you added up all the counseling and all the therapy and all the psychology and all the social work programs, you would find that it's relatively easy to get into most of those programs. For example, in my program, we generally accept most applicants. But I will say that our applicants tend to be of a high caliber. I, I think that our program tends to attract people who are high achievers and who are you know really serious about grad school. Because our program is geared toward adult learners, so most of our applicants are older, like in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and whatnot. So these people are super serious about grad school and therefore more capable of succeeding and therefore come across much better at application. But regardless, our program isn't that hard to get into. We don't require the GRE. Some programs do, but we don't. Uh, because it's not based in reality. It's not an indication of anything. (laughs) It's just a weird test. Um, We require that people submit their undergraduate grades. So that's a factor. You know, if someone's grades were all F's and D's or all, you know, withdrawn or something, then we're not likely to accept that person because they have a track record of having some sort of problem. We also ask our applicants to write an essay. And if the essay is poorly written or unintelligible, then we will likely not accept that person because our entire program is based on someone's ability to write. It's the primary way of evaluating students and their learning. We don't use tests. We have students write papers. So if the applicant can't write, then we worry about that person's success in our program. But for me, I'll tell you this. I base most of my, most of my decision regarding applicants on the interview. Can an applicant communicate well? Can an applicant listen well? Can the applicant track what I'm saying? Is the applicant serious about becoming a therapist? Do I get a good vibe from the applicant? These are the main questions that I'm running through in my mind. And from my experience, other programs have similar questions that are running through their mind, even though outwardly they might have different kinds of questions. Also, in my program, we consider social justice. Does this person come from a marginalized group? That's a question we might want to ask ourselves, because if so, we might want to go a little easier on them during the application process. Maybe their writing is bad, but it's understandable given their background that they were not given the opportunities that privileged peoples were. 
privileged people were. So we might accept that applicant and then give them extra help with their writing in the effort of social justice. Now, having said all of that, that it's generally easy to get into programs, there are quote unquote elite programs that are very hard to get into, but these are not typical. Like, I'm guessing that the psychology program at the University of Washington is really hard to get into because they have limited spots and the psychology program at the University of Washington is one of the top programs in the world, not for psychotherapy, but for research. But um, but those sorts of programs are rare. These quote-unquote elite, I'm saying quote-unquote elite because by what measure, but I, you know, I'm just using that label. These elite programs are, are kind of rare, but they do exist and they're hard to get into. So that's another thing to consider. Um, by the way, I remember participating in a bunch of experiment of experiments in the U university of Washington psych department when I was an undergrad, when I was 19 or 20 and I wanted to earn a couple bucks in one study, I remember they got me drunk and then tested my pain response by shocking me with electricity while they asked me to do these weird puzzles on a computer. <laughs> I remember it was fun. I got I got paid to to get sloshed in the middle of the day. <laughs> and then I got prodded and experimented on. But anyway, yeah. Uh, most programs are fairly easy to get into as long as your writing is good enough and as long as your communication skills are good enough. Now... Having said that, that doesn't mean that all students have an easy time once they enter a program. Some students in my program have a much easier time than others because they have better study habits or they're more comfortable with writing or they're less anxious or whatever. So just because someone's accepted into a program doesn't mean that they're, it's going to be a breeze for them. Uh, it's by no means uh, that. And like the PsyD program I was in, uh, tended to uh, accept a lot of applicants that came their way. But once they entered, a, a lot of people dropped out uh, within the first year because it, it was too hard or just too much effort for them or something. So just because you're accepted doesn't mean it's going to be a smooth ride for you. Because the, the thing is, is um, for a program like mine, we are we're so large that we're able to flex we're, we're able so if one year we have 60 new uh, students then all we have to do and that's a big year you know having 60 new students in my program in a year then all we have to do is just hire other adjuncts or just offer an adjunct that is teaching one class we just offer them to teach three classes to sort of our, our program can balloon in that way and if in the future we only get 30 students in a year, then we just, with adjuncts, you don't have to fire them because you all, they're, they're only contracted on a, on a class-by-class basis. And so you can just not give that person work. The adjunct instructors are kind of like the waiters of, you know, you know, whenever you worked at a restaurant, it's like, oh, I didn't get a shift this week. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Um, you could say that's unfair, but it's just kind of how the system works. And so for my program, we can, our, my policy is, is we just, we just, if we get 60 awesome applicants that year, then we just grow that year. And then if we only get 30 awesome applicants the next year, then we shrink a little bit. So we just, we sort of 
you know, bend with the times over time. In general, we tend to have a very consistent um, student body, but but other programs are not like that. Like the program at UW, from what I understand, even though they could hire more professors or, you know, hire um, uh, or have a bigger building or something, they choose not to. They, they want to keep it at a certain size, even though the demand is huge to get into that program. So there are just different kinds of policies and different kinds of practices. And when you apply to my program, um, if you're a good candidate, then we'll, we'll try to make room for you, even if we don't have room for you. So, um, you know, there's all that. All right. So let me talk about another thing. If you plan to work with kids and or teenagers, so I'm switching gears here. If you plan on working with kids or teenagers, I highly recommend you work in the field of marriage and family therapy or at least get trained in family therapy. Marriage and family therapists are, train, are trained to treat the entire system. They're trained to, to treat not only the child, but also the parents and the siblings. And, and so, um, you know, because most clinicians agree, especially in my field, that kids and teens are products of their environment. I can't tell you how many times I would be treating a 10-year-old and think, there's nothing wrong with this kid. I need to talk with the whole family. So if a kid or a teen is having problems, um, in all likelihood, you really need to be treating that entire system because in all likelihood, the kid is not the problem and in all likelihood, the system is the problem or, or maybe someone else in the family is generating the problem. So again, if you plan on working with kids or teens, I recommend you get trained in family therapy or you just become a marriage and family therapist. Now, if you become a psychologist or a mental health counselor or a social worker, you can certainly take uh, classes and extra training in family therapy. So I recommend that. And you get a supervisor that knows how to do family therapy, which isn't you know, always the case. All right. Let me talk about another thing. Let me switch gears again. New students often ask me if it's possible to work and go to graduate school at the same time. The answer to this is it all depends on the program. Some programs are designed so that you take classes when they tell you to take classes. So you take these classes in your first quarter, and you take these classes in your second quarter, and so on. With those programs, there's no flexibility, so it's much harder to work. But with other programs, like my program, you take classes at your own pace, which means that you can take as, as little as one class a quarter if you want. Um, you can even take quarters off if you want. It's all up to you. So our program is specifically designed to accommodate working adults. But from my experience, most programs are not like that, mostly because it's really hard to have enough courses running so that students can take courses whenever they want. But my program, as I was saying, is so large that it's not a big deal for us. So again, the question is, can you work while you're in graduate school? Well, it all depends on how flexible the program is, and it all depends on your capabilities. Some people can handle working full-time and going to school while they're in, you know, in graduate school, but some people can't. For instance, when I was in my master's program in my mid-20s, I could barely handle the master's program, <laughs> and I would work about you know, 10 hours per week, and that was a lot for me. Plus, I was in my mid-20s, and I was kind of a flake at the time, <laughs> and so uh, that's all I could handle, and I went into debt because I couldn't work. But when I got my doctorate, I was you know, 39 plus, um, I was presumably more mature at the time and I could handle working full time and, you know, being a full time student at the same time. 
Um, I was working full time at the university and I had my private practice and I also had this podcast and I was also in a band and I was going full time in my doctorate. Uh, I was super effing busy, but you know, I made it work, but I wasn't really as stressed out as I was, as I was during my master's because by that point in my career, I, I didn't stress out about papers or presentations the way I did when I was in my mid twenties. Okay. So, you know, the question is, can you work while you're going to school? It depends on two things. It depends on the program, which you want to ask them about. And it depends on your internship issues. Cause some internships like a psychology internship is there's in my program, you had two options. Well, man, uh, I didn't even talk about internships. Um, let me just briefly talk about internships. So every program, every, every profession has a different system with internships, but every profession has an internship or a practicum or a resident or whatever they call it in the medical field. In, uh, in the master's level uh, professions, mental health counseling, uh, MFT and social work, the internships in general are about a year. They can be, you know, they can, depending on the program, depending on the state, they're in general about a year long and they're half time. So 20 hours a week, they can be very stressful, but that's generally how it is. And they, and you generally don't get paid for it. In psychology, your internships are much more extensive. You have to, uh, for instance, for my psychology doctorate, I think I had something like five different internships at various different stages of the doctorate. And some were very short and some were very long. And so I was pretty much at any given time during my doctorate working on some sort of practical experience. And most of them were not paid. Um, so, but often the, the final internship, which, which is the big internship is often paid. And that's, I believe 2000 hours of work or at least 1500 hours of work. So you had the option of either doing your entire 2000 hours in one year, or you could do it over two years. I did it in one year. So that's a full-time job. 2000 hours of work is a full-time job. So in psychology, the internships are much more involved, varied, and, um, uh, and you're probably more likely to be paid for your internship in psychology, but you're not going to be paid very much is the thing. Um, so now in medical school for psychiatrists, their internships, their, uh, you know, they have different names for them, but uh, I know those can be quite extensive and I'm pretty sure they're paid for those. Psychiatric nursing, I have no idea, but I'm guessing there's some sort of practical experience while there or some sort of post-grad thing. Because all these professions, all these education programs are designed to train you in a particular job. And so, of course, it would have to involve some practical experience. Okay. So, one more thing. Um, let's talk about debt. Let's talk about, we've already talked a little bit about it, but some people might be like, well, which profession, which degree should I get? What program should I go to uh, regarding how much debt I'm going to have after I graduate? Well, there are really a lot of factors involved in this. During my master's, I accrued a lot of debt because, like I said, I was too stressed out by my master's to work, and I wanted to get through the master's as fast as possible. I could have gone slower through my master's if I wanted to and worked, 
but I, I just wasn't interested in that. I was, I was totally okay with going into debt, which in retrospect was kind of a dumb choice, but I don't know. It all worked out. <laughs> um, and then during my doctorate, I didn't go into debt at all because I was working full time. So, and I had a 50% discount on tuition, as I was talking about earlier. So, which still ended up, you know, the doctorate still ended up costing me $70,000, but, but that's half off. Anyway, so uh, during my master's, I accrued about $80,000 of debt over two years. So about 40 to 45 of that was tuition and about 40 to 20, 35 of that was living expenses. And after graduation, I was like, holy crap, I have $80,000 in debt and every month I have $1,000 in, in interest alone. <laughs> so this is pretty freaky because some of it was credit card debt, by the way, which is really stupid at 20% interest. <laughs> um, I'm not a smart person. Don't, you know, especially mid nineties. I had long hair, you know, I feel like my brains went into my hair and made me stupider. But anyway, um, after graduation, so I'm, I'm 80 grand in debt. I worked at an agency and I was building a private practice on the weekends and I was teaching as an adjunct at Antioch. So I had a full-time job plus two part-time jobs. So I was working 70 hours per week, <laughs> but I was earning a lot of money because I was working so much and I was living like a college person meaning that my rent was relatively low and I was driving a crappy car that was literally flooding with water in the passenger seat and I was not going on any fancy trips or anything like that. And, you know, none of my coffee mugs matched, although they still don't. None of my plates matched. None of my silverware matched. So I was working 70 hours a week. I was getting basically entry-level uh pay, although my private practice was paying quite a bit per hour at that point, um, even in that early stage. And I very quickly paid off my debt. I paid it off within about three years. So within about three years after graduation, I had earned enough to support myself and to pay down 80000 in debt. And after I paid off my debt, I scaled back on work, which meant I didn't need to work at the agency as much anymore, which meant I only needed to work in private practice and as an instructor. So I scaled back from 70 hours a week to, to 40 hours per week. Now, that's just me. Not everyone has a path like that. Some people take a much longer path to pay off their debt. Some people don't. Some people enroll in a program that says they'll pay off your student loan if you work at nonprofits for 10 years. So there's a, there's a program, a lot of, a lot of, I hear a lot of talk about that program because if you work in nonprofits, I think for 10 years, you get to waive your student loan debt. Um, also, some agencies will offer to pay you to uh, they'll they'll offer to pay your student loans if you relocate to their community. For example, I know some agencies in rural Washington that offer to pay off a good portion of your student loan debt if you move to their small town and work for their agency. Presumably, because it's hard to get therapists to move to their town and help with their citizens, you know. Uh, this is like Northern Exposure, if you remember that TV show, which was incidentally largely filmed uh, near my home in Washington State. Okay. So other areas that I haven't even got into, which are whole other areas, are sex therapy, play therapy, art therapy, drama therapy, dance movement therapy, certifications like in LGBTQ 
issues or multicultural therapy or chemical dependency, like to become a CDP. Um, there are many areas of specialization and certification, but the main professions are the ones I've talked about. So, for instance, if you're a sex therapist, you in all likelihood ha- are a psychologist or a marriage and family therapist or a social worker or a counselor or something, and you have this additional specialization of sex therapy. Um, that's also true for, for play therapy. If you're a certified play therapist, um, you, you, that's an add-on to your profession. So you can be a marriage and family therapist with a certification in play therapy or a certification in art therapy or a certification in drama therapy. In my program at Antioch University, we provide certification in play therapy, uh, art therapy, drama therapy, soon to be dance movement therapy. Uh, we have sex therapy in the work and LGBTQ clients in the work, multicultural therapy, uh, chemical dependency. But it all begins with the foundation of one of those six professions that I was talking about, either psychiatric nursing, psychiatry, psychologists, marriage and family therapists, mental health counselors, and social workers. There's pastoral people within those fields. So um, that's sometimes a confusion. Uh, and I'm only 99% sure that I'm covering all my bases there. Let me know if I'm not, please. Okay, so let me summarize. So getting back to your email gauge two and a half hours later, <laughs> um, you said that you're interested in, let's see, you said, um, da, 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 I believe uh, being a clinical psychologist would suit me best simply because I love helping people. But I'm also fascinated by psychological research. So, again, there's so many options available to you, patron Gage. If you really want to do research, then you need to get a doctorate. And that can either, that could be in any of the professions. It could be in psychology, it could be in psychiatry. I'm guessing nurse practitioners can get doctorates too. I'm uh, just going to take a guess on that. Or they can become further board certified, something. I don't know. You're not going to be able to get information from me in that area. But if you want to become a researcher, You've got to get a doctorate in one of the fields. And that could be psychology, mental health counseling, social work, um, or uh, marriage and family therapy. Did I say that one already? <laughs> anyway. Um, so uh, that's that. But as I've also been saying, it's hard to get jobs in research. It, it's sort of like the rock and – or sort of like becoming a rock star in a, in a sense. It's like you don't say to yourself – I want to go to college to become a rock star, <laughs> you know. It's like, well, you might you might make it big, but you might not. And so um it's, you know, obviously easier to become a researcher than it is to become a rock star, but you know, just be careful with that. Be careful with that decision. I, I know a lot of people who are super interested in research and then be, have this wake-up call once they enter the the job market and realize that there just aren't there's just not a lot of work in that area and they become quite disillusioned. So you just have to be careful there. But you do say that you want to help people. And you said, I, I believe that you, I see you, you're saying, I think I want to be a clinical psychologist. But again, I just want to point out that although clinical psychologists do provide psychotherapy to people, there are other professions that also provide psychotherapy to people and 
There are other professions that will take at least half the time, if not a third of the time, and at least half the money, if not a third of the money, to actually get to that point. So, you know, just consider that. And those other professions like social work, counseling, and therapy, you can always go on to get your your doctorate in which you study research, supervision, teaching, and those kinds of things. So that is my advice to you. And, you know, just think practically about that kind of stuff. Think think real practically about that because, um, well, because it's good to think practically. <laughs> okay, so summarizing here. Make sure you know what kind of job you want. Really think about that. And, you know, that might be a hard question to answer. And it might take you years to answer that question. Uh, it, took, it took me years to figure out what I wanted to do. I was, it wasn't until I was 24 that I even thought about becoming a therapist. So, so, you know, it might take a long time. So really think about it. And once you start kind of zeroing in on something or start considering different jobs, go to an actual, go to like five to 10 of those professionals, sit down with them for an hour, buy them coffee or whatever, and really ask them what it's like to do their job. What, what's their day to day? You know, what are the stresses? How much money do they make? What are the pros? What are the cons? Really find out from the horse's mouth. Don't, don't look to TV or the internet to answer those questions. So decide on a job. Go find out information on it. How much does it make? What is it? And what does it take to get to that job? Uh, the reason why I'm saying that particular point is I hear some people say, "I really want to get a. I really want to be- become. I really want to get a doctorate in psychology." They'll say, and then I'll say, "Like, well, what do you want to do? What you know? What what sort of job do you want after you graduate?" And they'll say, "Oh, I want to become a therapist." And I'll say, "Well, do you want to become an assessor?" And they're like, "Well, not really." And I'll say, "Do you want to become a researcher?" And they'll be like, eh, "Not really." And I'll say, well, why are you, why are you becoming a psychologist to become a therapist? And they'll they'll say, I don't know. I just want to become a psychologist. I, I really want to, you know, go to a a doctorate in psychology school. And sometimes I'll, you know, continue the conversation. Sometimes I won't. But basically, the gist is, it's like if if that's the if you just want to become a therapist, um, then there's not a a super amount of wisdom in my mind in becoming a psychologist, because like I said, psychologists are trained to do 10 things, whereas marriage, family therapists, counselors, social workers, but particularly marriage, family therapists and counselors are trained to do one thing, which is psychotherapy. So sometimes I, uh, I wonder where people get that stuff from. Sometimes I suspect where they get it from is that the psychologists are kind of, the term psychologist is known in our culture and people will say, Oh, I want to become a psychologist. Like for me myself, when I was writing in my, I keep a journal. And when I decided to become a therapist, I use the term psychologist and therapist interchangeably in my journal. I I'll say stuff like, Oh, I want to become a therapist. Boy, when I become a psychologist, da, 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 because I just didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know there was a distinction and how, how would I know? I mean, there's, there's, it's so confusing, even if I did know. So anyway, the point is, is that some people will be attracted to the field of psychology just because the, the terms appeal to them. And 
they will not consider other fields because they just don't know about it. I mean, how many, how many people, I'm guessing most people are familiar with the word psychologist. How many people are familiar with terms like licensed marriage family therapist or licensed mental health counselor or licensed clinical mental health counselor or licensed professional counselor or licensed social worker or licensed clinical social worker? I mean, these, these phrases are, you know, somewhat common, but not nearly as common as the phrase psychologist. But again, if you only want to become a therapist and you never want to do these other things, then you really want to be careful about committing that much time and energy when you don't have to. Now, having said that, like myself, even though I, I don't want to be an assessor and, um, and I'm not really interested in doing research, I mean, I'm interested in doing research, but there's just other things that research is a headache. <laughs> Um, and you got to be really into it. So, um, I would say I'm fairly into it, but not into it enough. And maybe sometime in the future, I'll, I'll start doing research again. But, but anyway, my point is, is that, uh, if you decide to get your psychology doctorate, even though you want to be a psychotherapist, but you're getting your psychology doctorate because you want to learn about all these other areas, just because you want to know about these other areas, then, that makes sense. I mean, that's what I did. I got my psyche, even though I didn't need to, um, partially because I wanted to learn about all the random areas of psychology, which, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. So again, figure out what sort of job you want, what sort of occupation, go to people who are working at that occupation, interview them. Then you have to sort of backtrack and figure out what degree gets you to that job or what set of degrees get you to that job. Then you want to go to programs that offer those degrees. You want to look for whether or not the program is any good. Are they accredited or not? That's not a key issue, but it's worth considering. You want to ask alumni. You want to ask the professors, what is it like? How much does it cost? What are, you know, what are their outcomes? What are their alumni saying? Um, are, you, know, you want to ask alumni how many other professors did you like? How many did you not like? Did you feel safe? That's a big thing. I haven't talked about that yet. One of the best questions you could probably ask an alumni is, did you feel safe? There are some programs do, that do not make you feel safe. The culture of the program is such that the students are terrified, not in the good sense, but in a bad sense. As a program director myself, perhaps my primary mission in life as program director is to make my students feel safe. I want them to feel like they are safe in my program. They're safe to talk. They're safe to provide feedback. They're safe to ask questions. They're safe to make a mistake. They're safe to, I don't know, have a personal issue that interferes with something. They're, they're safe. I, they, I have their back. When they are struggling, I will help them. I want my students to feel that way. There are other programs, and I and my fellow colleagues also feel the same way. There are other programs, um, of which I won't go into too much detail on, that do not make you feel safe, that make you feel like at any moment you're going to get kicked out of the program, that make you feel like you're a constant screw-up, that make you feel like the standards are too high for you, that are crazy-making. There's a myth out there that I believed back in the day that if a program is in existence, it must be good enough 
so that students feel safe. But that is just not the case. You know, think about the different places you've worked at. Some places have a good vibe and some, some places have a bad vibe. Well, education programs are exactly the same as that. And psychotherapy programs are particularly intense in that way because you are talking about yourself so much. If you're learning about engineering and it's sort of a mildly toxic environment, my guess is, is it's not as much of an impact on the students because you can just sort of put your head down as long as you get good scores on your you know, tests and whatnot, like you'll, you'll probably get your way through it. But if you're in a toxic environment in a psychotherapy program or a psychology program, I can tell you from experience that everything starts to fall apart at the seams because you're expected to expose yourself and you're being examined not only in your competencies, but also just in terms of your, your, your personhood, which is a good thing because being a therapist is not a technical endeavor. It's a, it's a, it's a humanistic endeavor. It's something that involves you as a human being. And so all of those factors are involved. And so if it's a toxic environment, it can be very icky feeling so that, that would be the first question I would ask alumni is, did you feel safe or, and, or did you ever feel unsafe? That's a, that's a very important thing to know. So you want to know the job you want. You want to ask people in that job. You want to figure out what degrees get you to that job. You want to uh, start talking to alumni and faculty about, at those programs. You want to ask, you know, how much does it cost? Do you feel safe? Did you feel safe? You want to... Um, figure out uh, what the licensing situation is. Does the program prepare you for licensing? What's the accreditation situation? Does it matter? What sort of specialties do you want to go into? All these kinds of things. Again, marriage and family therapists work with individuals, couples, and families. And there are lots of different specialties within, within that. Uh, art therapy, drama therapy, infant therapy, autism. Uh, mental health counselors, Pretty much the same sort of thing. A little bit different from marriage and family therapists, but pretty close. A little bit different, though, because they're not trained in couples and families in general. Some of them are, though, and particularly post-grad, you can absolutely become proficient in that area. You have social workers. Some social workers are really trained in psychotherapy, and some, I might say, are only half trained in psychotherapy, whereas social workers are also trained in these other areas from what I understand, like working in public health, working in hospitals, working in community centers, working for DSHS, CPS, this kind of stuff. Then you have psychologists who are trained not only as psychotherapists, the, the clinical psychologists are not only trained as psychotherapists, but they're also trained to provide psychological assessments, which if you're really into that sort of thing, it can be really fulfilling and can provide you with a lot of money. But you have to become extra trained in that. Just for example, for me, even though I graduated from a, from you know with my doctorate, as it stands right now, I'm not ready to provide full blown assessments for people because I I need more education beyond my doctorate and more supervision regarding providing assessments. Particularly if I wanted to go in the forensic field and in the courts and that sort of thing, that usually takes years to become proficient in. And so, um, but for some people, they love that job. 
they're in court all the time. They're evaluating famous people. They're, you know, it can be, it can be kind of an interesting job. You're going into the prisons. You're talking to, you know, these kinds of people. Some people love that kind of thing. And so if, if you're into that, definitely psychology is your, is your ticket. Um, plus, if you don't like assessment, you can always choose from the other things you're trained for in psychology, like, like providing psychotherapy and or maybe even looking into some research. If you want to do research, then I would choose a, a, a psychology PhD program that was really focused on research. Having said all that, I haven't even mentioned medical research or psychiatric research, which, of course, I have very little knowledge of, but I'm assuming there's a whole track in psychiatry. There's also whole tracks in neuro, like brain science and biology and that there's, there's it, it that are super non-clinical um, in that they don't provide psychotherapy. So, so there's a lot of other specialized area in research of the brain, right? Or cultural research or uh, sociology, so these are all other kinds of if – if you're purely interested in research and you're not interested in clinical work, then you can go to many other fields than I've even mentioned today, right, that involve a lot of the things we're talking about. You know, sociologists, for instance, uh, can study a lot of the same things that psychologists would study just from the sociology field, and they're not clinicians at all. So anyway <laughs> um, – if you want to prescribe meds, then you've got to become a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse. Uh, psychiatrists make a lot more money, from what I can tell, than the others. Uh, but they're in school and work real hard when they're in school. Um, and medical schools aren't the easiest to get into. So, so there's all of that. If you want to become a supervisor, then... You can really be in any of those fields, but getting your doctorate might help you to not only learn how to be a supervisor, but also um, uh, being more qualified for supervision jobs. But but there's plenty of master's level supervisors. In fact, I would venture to say most supervisors are probably master's level in the industry, um, in all the different fields. Anyway, um, if you want to become a teacher, same deal. You can teach at the master's level with a master's in a lot of programs. But if you want to move up the ranks in, in teaching, then getting a doctorate will, will absolutely help. Not only because you have that magic PhD or PsyD after your name, which is a bragging right and also makes your school look good if your professors have doctorates, but also when you're in your doctoral program, in all likelihood, you're learning how to teach. Like, for instance, in my PsyD program, most of the classes involved some sort of formal presentation. And this wasn't just like a 15-minute. This was like a an hour-and-a-half presentation that all of us would have to do. It was a little annoying at some times because some classes were essentially the entire quarter all I was going to class for was watching student presentations. And God bless my classmates, but some of them aren't the best presenters in the world. And so it's kind of a waste of time <laughs> at times. But anyway, um, so in the PsyD program and a lot of you know psychology doctorate programs, one of their goals is to make you into a quote-unquote professional, someone who is able to provide presentations really well. And so... Um, 
So, you know, and that's a form of teaching, right? So, um, so to become a teacher, there's a lot of paths. Uh, any of the silos will work, even at the master's level. And you really have to get to know someone. That's usually the route. Um, the other route, of course, if you want to teach at, you know, one of the elite places, then you've really got to you've really got to publish a shit ton. You've got to, you know, cozy up next to primary researchers who are pumping out ten articles a year. You got to get some co-authorship with them on stuff. You got to build your resume that way, which. I'm so not involved in and so not interested in doing. But if you're interested in doing that, that's the path. You gotta, you gotta get published. Uh, uh, you know, maybe even writing books. But um, but that's a whole world in and of itself that um, is another part of academia. I, I'm really fortunate in that my program has sort of you know let go of that. It although we are given time and expected, we're as professors we're expected to engage in academic pursuits that are beyond our normal job, like publishing, like researching, like writing a book. But it's not a hard requirement. It's, it's more like, um, and all of us do it anyway, because it's just part of our passion in life. But uh, in other programs, in other universities, you are required to publish at least one article per year or something like that. And th- to me, that's just, it's just ridiculous because it makes our uh, instructors focus on something that isn't necessarily going to result in enhancing their ability to teach students. When you engage in research and when you're definitely helping uh, the, the field and society in, in some ways, but it in some ways probably takes you away from your students because you're so busy trying to get things done. Now, you know, you could debate the finer points of that because sometimes research involves students and so blah, blah, blah. But anyway, my university is flexible in that way and allows people to do their own thing. Like, for instance, engaging in professional pursuits, this podcast could could qualify as that. Um, also, considering that I'm program director, I get to set the rules. Ha ha. So, <laughs> so anyway, um, so, so yeah. Now, having said all that, like I said, there are many other random gigs that I'm not even mentioning. Then the list just is too long to go into. I know someone who is working at an agency that is focusing on research in that they're researching a particular treatment modality for depressed people. There are clinics that are solely focused on trans people and people work with that. There are clinics solely focused on domestic violence victims, uh, shelters, and these kinds of things. There are clinics for sleep. There are clinics for ADHD. There, there's so many different random gigs in this field. And pretty much all of the different professions I've talked about can get a job in those agencies if you want. So the nice thing is, I guess, that I... I guess I'll end with here is that even if you choose badly, there's so much variability and overlap between the different professions that there's gotta be something fun and fulfilling for each of us to do. Even if we're not super excited about the quintessential work of that, of that particular profession, if that makes any sense. 
Well, that was a long journey. If you can't tell, my voice is a little scroggy. It's almost three hours. Let me know if I left anything out. I spent, I don't know how long on this, uh, my notes here, which again are 35 pages. Um, a lot of these things are anecdotal. Again, most of the information is only applicable to the United States. If you have additional information, let me know, and I'll you know make corrections. I'm always interested in that. But of course, use your social skills when you're providing feedback. <laughs> And again, patrons out there, you are super rad. Um, this podcast survives because of you. I would not do deep dives like this if you guys weren't there. So thank you so much. It uh, This podcast is very fulfilling to me. Oh, you know, I didn't talk about podcasting. Any of the professions can be podcasters <laughs> as well. That's another job you could be. Um, what other kind of jobs might... I'd be able to spout off. Um, I had a gig for a while where I did in-home therapy uh, that was paid for by the state. Uh, like I said, I have a job where um, a middle school slash high school hires me to go to a camp once a year and provide guidance to the older kids to provide guidance to the younger kids regarding topics like sex therapy and stress management, not sex therapy, <laughs> sex education um, and, uh, stress management and bullying and that kind of stuff. So that, that's pretty random. And I, if I wanted to, I could develop that into a thing that I would shop around to other schools, but I just haven't cause it's just, I just like doing that one thing once a year. Um, there are out, uh, we have, um, we've had a list, uh, guest on the podcast, Paul Abadili, who does wilderness programs. He talked about it. it's uh, hopefully it's still up, but he takes people into the wilderness, um, whether they be kids or adults, and they go on a fasting. And they so uh, if you heard this episode, you know this. But so he'll have like eight, you know, thirteen year olds, and they come to the wilderness and they spend a couple days camping together and talking and you know, getting to know each other and expressing themselves and blah, blah, blah. And then one day they all are, they all disperse to different parts of the wilderness by themselves and they fast. So they don't eat, they drink water and they don't have a cell phone or anything. And they just sit or kind of wander around their corner of the wilderness for like three days. Can you imagine that? And they sleep like on a rock <laughs> and um, kids. Uh, and so my friend and colleague, Paul Abadili runs these programs and uh, I've seen videos of these kids before and after. And I can just tell you like, it's an amazing program. So he's a marriage and family therapist and that's what he's doing. So like I said, there's just so many different gigs and all the different silos, all of them can do that. A psychiatrist could do that, could do, could form an, you know, an outdoors fasting, uh, therapeutic experience if they wanted to. So there's, there's so many different things to do. It all just depends on what sort of thing you network in and what sort of thing you want to put your effort into and what sort of things you get trained in. It's just a wonderful field in that way. All right. 
I am so curious as to what you guys think of this because I've said so many random details that uh, I just have to guess that some of it's a bit weird. But I I would like to know if you think am I is is at least most of what I'm saying uh, true or accurate or good advice. What's bad advice? Let me know. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do. 